I just spent two and a half years in the worst prison system in the world. I'm the king of the jail, in charge, and I wake up one day I'm hungry. So I came out of my cell, I walk up to the gate where the CL's at. Give him a head nod, he opens the gate. He know who I am. I bang on the kitchen door. The guy slides a little slot back, sees it's me, he opens the door. Dude's on the grill, like, yo, Jim, man, make me a hamburger. All right, Dre. They hop to it. And then this guy comes walking out from the back. He walks up, he's like, hey, what are you doing in my kitchen? He's like yelling at me. I'm like, dude, check this out. All the yelling's not necessary. So let's just stop yelling and talk like men. So he comes and I said, yo, who are you? I'm the food service administrator. I'm in charge of this whole kitchen. He said, well, who are you? So I'm the regulator. He says, well, what do you regulate? I said, if you go home or not, I could, your wife would miss you, your kids would miss you. I don't have a wife and kids. I'm going to solitary confinement. I'll be back in about seven years. So my question is this, do I get it today or do I get it in seven years? He's sweating bullets. He walked over to the grill. He said, yo, dude said, what's up? He said, make him two. This is Andre Norman, formerly a top gang leader who was facing over 100 years in prison. Now he is a prison reform activist and speaks to the incarcerated about changing their lives. And today we will talk about how he was charged with eight counts of attempted murder, how he mentally survived three years in solitary confinement, and how he turned it around to become a Harvard fellow. This is his story. Welcome to camp. I, I took a head count. There's only three of you in here. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you hide a couple motherfuckers, right? I ain't worried about it. You think you can take me? There's three of you in here. <laughs> you. I, I, I did a head count. There's three of you in here. You, just you. I passed you. I got your two homies. Bro, I've been working out. You see this? That Come means on. nothing. Come on, bro. You know what that means to me? What? You're not smart enough to run. <laughs> Andre Norman. Okay, boss, me and Mano, leave me alone. Bro, this is so crazy. So this is the funniest thing, Miles. He comes in. We go, a second we get in, he all of a sudden we go get food. And we pop into like a Mexican spot downstairs. And then he immediately starts speaking fluent Spanish and just talking to the lady in Spanish. And I was like, how the hell does this guy know Spanish, former prisoner, gang member, reformed, gets out and knows fluent Spanish. And then the best part, after he puts in the whole order in fluent Spanish, he looks at me and goes... Hey, what's the green stuff? I go, what? I said, I want the green thing. The, the green stuff. The green thing. I was like, salsa verde? He said, no, the green with the avocados. No, nah, it was the avocado. I was like, guacamole? No, nah, you said guacamole. <laughs> I said, no, the stuff that it come from. <laughs> I was like, bro, how do you know full Spanish and not avocado? Because I didn't eat avocados for years. Really? I never. It looked nasty. It was green, mushy stuff. Oh, that's so funny. So it was like green pumpkins. So I was like, nah, I'm not rocking that. That's actually a decent point. It is kind of kind of gross. I went to my friend's house. My son goes there every summer in Jersey. I go to the house to pick up the kid. Way there out by the pool. He's like, oh, my wife just made guacamole. I'm like, wow. <laughs> you have to try with the dip, Dre. It's great. I'm like, wow. But he he takes my my, my son comes for six weeks of summer. Yeah. He's such a great friend. He gets my son for one of the six weeks. Wow. We get that cool. And he has a son, same age, same difference. So we kicking it. So I had to eat the guacamole for the wife. Yep. And I liked it. Oh, no. And then you're like, my whole life is a lie. Like, <laughs> I spent years in the Caribbean <laughs> laughing at people for eating mushy Pumpkin. green pumpkins. Yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, the shit was good. It's your favorite food. Well, I ain't going to go that far. Okay. Captain right. Crunch slash Fruity Pebbles is still- That's your favorite food. Fruity Pebbles. Wow. So That's not actually- but, but that's up there, like maybe the best. Fruity Pebbles is like you say the best. Yeah, I mean, I'm a taco guy, but because okay. my mother used to make tacos when I was a kid. But Fruity Pebbles, I will never blink at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, man. Look, I've especially been... if you take them purple shits out. <laughs> Wait, why don't you like the purple ones? I don't know why they added them for. What do you mean, Fruity? It Pebbles just messed the... up the flavor, the color of the water, <laughs> the color of the milk, man. I mean, the purple milk just looks rock. I've, I've never met a Fruity Pebbles connoisseur that's like we can't do the purple ones. 
You don't come to the hood enough. <laughs> okay, that's that's probably true. Yeah. That's that's actually a fact. I Y'all don't do Wheaties, hood. man. Y'all see? <laughs> eat your you Wheaties. Think, you think all white people eat Wheaties? Did you? Yes. It is. <laughs> okay, Andre, I've been watching, which also, can I call you Dre? That's right. We wanted to. Andre or Dre. You sign all your text messages, Dre, which I thought was so cool. You just say the text and you go, Dre. Dre. It's like, I'm going to start doing that. What's your like, name? I'm, I'm putting your name. I'm oh. saying Dre. <laughs> that shit was fire. <laughs> um, but, dude, I've been watching your videos. Like, I was reading excerpts from your book. I just watched a documentary about you, which is fascinating. And you have this crazy life. And I just want to, like, tell people, like, little excerpts. Um, I mentioned it before, but, like, grew up in a rough neighborhood in Boston. No. Uh, really? I didn't grow up in a rough neighborhood. I grew up in a rough household. Oh. My neighborhood was chill. Anybody from Boston will tell you Mattapan is not rough. There's no housing projects. There's no whole bunch of drug infestation. There's no whole bunch of gangs. It was all. It was like if you were black and your family made some money, you mm-hmm. moved to Mattapan. It was oh, like really? Elwood Mobility. We're the Jeffersons. Ah, so it was like the coming up neighborhood. We, we came up. We it used to be all Jewish neighborhood. Then black. Then they did the, uh, the redlining. They said you can live here. You guys and, gentrified the Jews. That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, they let us move in because it was like it was Irish town. Boston's Irish, right? So the Jewish people, the art people, out at the time. They gave us a Jewish neighborhood. Our newspaper guy was Jewish. Oh, wow. And there were synagogues all around the neighborhood. I didn't know what they were, but they were there. Oh, interesting. But, so, um, so, yeah, so you had a, a maybe a traumatic childhood and then got involved with some gang stuff, went to prison, spent a long time in prison, but was supposed to spend a longer time. Yeah. And really kind of rose up the ranks in prison and then made a, a change in your life that was really significant and ended up really turning your life around and a lot of other people's lives around. And I was really, really inspired by your story. Um, and I just kind of want to start at the beginning. For sure. So you're in Boston, in this uh, formerly Jewish neighborhood. You're on the way up, but your household is not so great. Uh, I remember one of the excerpts from you were talking about your uh, your band class. So you were a band kid. How does a band kid get involved into gang violence? Well, when I'm in the sixth grade, I figured out something. They were poor. I didn't know I was poor in elementary school because everybody just played and had fun. Nobody yeah. said anything. Right. You get to sixth grade, you're around the bigger kids. They start laughing at you for having dirty clothes, having uncool sneakers, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So the kids would give me the business every day. And I would go to the homeroom trying to hide out. And then the homeroom teacher said, hey, who needs a free lunch form? There was no forms in elementary school. She said, Norman, you need a form. Y'all are poor. Come get this form. She screamed on me. <laughs> Snitched on and, you? Yeah, she did everything. She made me come to the front of the class and get the form. It was a big form, too. Uh, I go home, ask my mom to sign it. She signs it. I come back to school. Now the kids are laughing at me for having old clothes, dirty sneakers, and I'm a freelance kid. Life sucked. Yeah. So one of my friends was like, hey, Dre, we can go to the park and sell weed. We can get some money, get up off this. So I go to the park. We were really runners. We weren't sellers. Okay. So the older kids would sell, and we'd run it back across the street and get the packages, 10 bags of weed at a time or whatever it was. And then we get like 30 bucks a day. Mm. So now we're off bum status. <laughs> right. But in class in sixth grade at that time, everybody was in band. So Miss Ellis, the band teacher, I went to band class. She said, yo, here's a trumpet. I'm like, all right, cool. What do you do? She gave me a trumpet. I'm on punishment the entire middle school. I stayed in trouble. My mother put me on punishment every other day, if not every other every other minute. What do you, what do you mean on punishment? You get in trouble... Teacher call home, you don't clean up your room, you come home late past curfew, you break something in the house. Just little things. Little things. Yeah. Two days in the house, you can't go out this weekend, be in the house at 5 o'clock instead of 8 o'clock, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I stayed in trouble. I stayed on punishment. Mm -hmm. So I had 
what I do at punishment time, I played my trumpet. Ah. So I played trumpet through the whole sixth grade, whole seventh grade, whole eighth grade. I was home a lot on punishment. Right. So I got really good at it. Yeah. So when it came time for me to go to high school, I was going to go to my district high school where all the kids went, my sisters went, my brothers went. I'm like, I'm going there. Miss Ellis came and she said, no, you're not going to the district high school. I said, yes, I am. She said, no, you're not. She said, you're going to this magnet school. I said, I don't know anybody there. She said, you go where your gift goes. You meet new people. That sounds great. I ain't think do such thing as meet new people. <laughs> so she sends me to the new school and I get there and I go to the band class in the morning. Now, I've been selling drugs for three years. Right. I moved up from running to selling and carrying oh. guns. You escalate. You, you move up a little bit. Right. So I'm full-fledged in the streets. But I go to band. I'm still playing the trumpet. I go to band class first day. It's a room full of nerds. Yeah. I'm like, they looked at me. I looked at them. They're like, I'm like, don't start and there won't be none. But the kids were like, can you play the trumpet? That's all they cared about. So I pulled out my trumpet, hit Star Wars, hit Rocky. They're like, thumbs up, crazy. Yeah. I joined the band. So in the morning, I'm in band class with all the nerds. Yeah. In the afternoon, I'm hanging out with the thug kids, running around, guns, girls, cutting class. Were you affiliated at that point? Or was it just like small little weed dealing stuff we like that? We were weed dealing. This is what happens. It's When I grew up, there was what set you claim. It's what neighborhood you're from. Mm. It's the same thing in California. It's really neighborhoods. Right. Just in California, they give the neighborhoods more defined names. <laughs> That's all. So the Hoover, the Hoover block or you know I'm saying Comp the corner pocket Crips in Compton, it's just the corner pocket. The corner pocket was where they were from. Right. They just added Crips to the back end of it. Uh, Pyru's a street. They just they're the Pyru guys. It became a gang, but Pyru's the street they live on. Mm. You know what I'm saying the it was the nine, nine trade gangsters. They live on 93rd. Right. It's like, we're the same things. We just didn't put names on the back end of it. So we're from Wellington Hill. They called us the Hill Boys. That was clever. <laughs> so It's a cool name, though. Back, so I'm from this neighborhood, but right. I go to school in a different neighborhood. The man. I, mm -hmm. I wanted to go to, a, to my district school. Everybody from my neighborhood was there. Mm -hmm. So I would have been in a formalized neighborhood gang had I gone to my neighborhood high school. But since I went to a magnet school, I was with kids from Roxbury, from the other side of town. So I'm hanging out with them. But the long story short is, they told me one day, man, get rid of the trumpet. It ain't cool. It's stupid. It don't make sense. And it's just it's just dumb. And they said, trumpet or us. Damn. Man, so I gave up my trumpet. And when I gave up my trumpet, now I got no purpose. Now I got no vision. I got no dream. I'm just with these dudes hanging out every day. And shit goes from bad to worse. But now if you're at the magnet school, how do you give up trumpet? Like you just go to the director and you're like, I'm not doing this anymore. The magnet school just had had a program. It had a music program. It had a science program. But it's right. still a regular high school. Right. It just had specialized stuff. It had like auto body shop, mm -hmm. hospice. It was a really nice school for trades. Right. And music was just one of their things. And you basically just quit it altogether. I just quit the band. Damn. Okay, so now you're still going to that school. Did you try to go to your district school? No, nah, I didn't even think about moving. Because now you. I'm not even really going to class. Right. Oh, really? I wasn't going to... only class I really went to was band. Mm -hmm. Like, some people go to school and they only go to play basketball. Yeah, yeah, I went yeah. to school only playing the band. Oh, wow. I'm saying? I was a nerd like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I know tons of school. I only went to school to play football or basketball or whatever right. that thing was. My thing was swimming and my thing was band. And what did your parents think? Like, you quit band. Like... Uh, they didn't know. Oh, wow. They didn't even know why I was in the band. <laughs> oh really? My father, I think I was in middle school for three years. My father came into school once, mm -hmm. and in high school, four years he came there once. Mm -hmm. And both times it was just like some fluke stuff. I don't think he came to my middle school. Let me take that back. He came to my high school once, or they might have called him one of the two. 
Mm-hmm. I think I know it was at least a phone call. Right. Because I remember the discussion was they the teacher told him what I said to the teacher that that dude don't care about me. He don't call shots in my house, mainly because he didn't live in my house. Uh, so they told him. He said, "Hey, um, he said you 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 ain't got no authority over him." Technically, he didn't. Right. Because <laughs> I'm living in my mom's house. Uh, and and they used to live together. Like when you were younger, when I was, they were. When I was young. First grade, he left. Oh wow! But he didn't go. He stayed in town though. Oh yeah, Boston's not a big town. When we first moved out, he literally moved a half a block away. You know, you used to go out and ride the. I don't know about you. And I neighbor, you go out, you ride the bike to the corner. You do the four corners. Yeah. yeah you go yeah. around the block. Your mother, you can ride your bike. Just stay on the sidewalk. You yeah. all around the block. Yeah, we had like a little cul-de-sac. So as long as we stayed like in the neighborhood of the cul-de-sac, we we're fine. We could go to the corner, to the corner, to the corner, to the corner, and go around. Mm-hmm. My father lived at the second corner. Oh wow. He literally lived. We ride to the corner, ride down to the next corner. He lived right there. I didn't know it at the time because I was a kid. But as I grew up and I became a young miller, I knew where we used to live and I could see where he lived. I'm like, dude, we live like a half a block from him. And how did that make you feel? That he just moved a block away? I didn't know it. Uh, when I was a kid, I didn't know where he was. Right. I figured it out by the time I got to like middle school. When we used to go visit him in middle school and my mother used to send us over there, I realized how close it was. Mm-hmm. When I became an adult, I really knew how close it was. Yeah. So it was just like you tapped... By then, it didn't matter because I had kind of like washed him out of my thinking. So what he did or what he thought or what he felt didn't matter. Right. And I learned three lessons as a small kid. The first lesson was that you can hit people. I watched my mother be hit for years. Mm. So if she can be hit, anybody can be hit. Mm -hmm. Two, I better protect myself. Kids threw rocks and names at me when I took the bus to school. And three, I can quit on anything. My father quit on us in in the first grade. He just disappeared, went out on his own way. And if he can quit on me, then why can't I quit? Mm-hmm. So as a young kid, hit people, protect myself, and quit were my three rules. Right. And now why, I saw you mention it in the part of the documentary, but why were they throwing rocks at you again? Um, in Boston in the 70s, it was just coming out of civil rights era, and it was still gentrification, I mean, segregation in the schools, unequal school systems, mm-hmm. and they were trying to fix it. So one of the things they said was we had all black schools and all white schools in Boston. And they said, well, we're going to no longer have all white and all black public schools. Mm-hmm. We're going to mix the schools. And so federal judge signed a law saying that there'll be no more segregated schools for public. Mm-hmm. So the white kids and black kids will be bused to schools. And so white kids will bust to black schools. Black kids will bust to white schools. And the white people in Boston protested. That was like the early 70s. Mid-70s. Wow. So you were going to school at that point. Yeah. I was born in 67. Oh, wow. So I was on the bus. But I didn't go to a white school. Our buses went to a white neighborhood to get home. So the kids where the buses were going, they're throwing rocks at the buses. So it just became a thing to stone the buses with black kids on them. What? So it didn't matter. Black kids on the bus, you threw rocks. That's what it got to. So our bus didn't even go to a white school. We drove through white neighborhoods, so kids threw rocks at us. Yeah. And that's I mean, just what it was. And so the rocks are literally like flying through the bus. Oh, smashed through the windows. Breaking the windows. Or break windows. You're not throwing rocks at the metal. You throw rocks at the glass. Oh, it so they're like actually trying to injure Stoning, yeah. Like children. Children. Whoever on the bus. So you say it like that, like children. They were children slaves. Yeah. They were like children. Babies, slaves. Yeah. They were bred to create more slaves. So it's like being a kid isn't a prerequisite for getting a pass. Yeah, I guess. But I just think, like, I, I know this is, like, I'm, like, it's so recent. Like, obviously, it's all recent. But I'm, like, the 70s, like, the fact that you were in a school and, like, going through neighborhoods where they were trying to hurt you as, like, a first grader is, like, 
insane to me. I'll tell you this. And in my family, there's me. I got brothers and sisters. I got my father and his brothers and sisters and my grandfather, his brothers and sisters. And I am the first generation to be born in a hospital Wow. in my family. And the only reason I was born in a hospital is because my grandfather moved his family north. Had we still lived in Virginia, I'd have been born at home too. My father and all his brothers and sisters, my grandfather and all his brothers and sisters, my grandmother and all her brothers and sisters, born at home. It was against the law to be born in a hospital if you were black in Virginia. It was against the law? Yeah. Policy, law, whatever you want to call it, it just wasn't happening. Wow. So infant mortality, if something went wrong, you just dead. Mm-hmm. Now, did you even have any concept of like racism at that time when you were a little kid? Like what? Prior to the rocks, no. So what are you like? What are you thinking and, when that's happening? And even the rocks, I didn't see it as racism. I just saw it as rocks. <laughs> you don't understand it's racism. Yeah, they didn't write racism on the rocks. Nah, like, oh, that's like, what this rocks for. I know. I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. I just know what was happening. Right. It's like when you're getting bullied in school, you don't really think, "Hey, I'm a victim, and this guy's a bully, and he's gone through trauma, and he's just taking it out on me." You just getting, you just feel bad. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So at the time, I didn't say, "Oh, this is a racist attack." Right. I learned that as I grew, and I look back on my life. Right. I I didn't understand, like they call it domestic violence now. Yeah. If you hit your wife, it's called domestic violence. Right. In the '70s, it was called handling your household. There was mm-hmm. no domestic violence in the '70s. Yeah. So I, I heard someone say this quote that like history is a different country. And like sure. I think about that where I'm like, even just your story, like 50 years ago in the 70s, I'm like, bro, that is it sounds like a different planet that like it was the way that you grew up, just like the racism, which obviously is still present now. But like the domestic violence and all that stuff is just like kind of wild. I mean, it's but, like difficult to process like what that what that is even looks like. What happens is every generation has this trauma. Mm hmm. Our generation's trauma was race-related. Mm-hmm. Our generational trauma was segregation. Our generational trauma was forced poverty. Mm-hmm. Our generational trauma was government programming. So that was our government. That was our trauma for our generation. Right. And my father's generation, there, I mean, it was a whole other thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like you didn't matter. You didn't have a voice. You could be beat, hung, or killed any day of the week. Right. You know what I'm saying you better not look back. Know your place. So he came from a whole... I never felt fearful of white people oh really in the sense of if i said something to a white person they might take me out back and beat me to death right that's what my father grew up with mm. so like the the traumas are kind of generational yeah it's just but they change right yeah that's interesting and did you when you were a kid did you have animosity towards white people no nah, really i was cool with them even after all like the shit and throwing rocks in the bus like you weren't like kids are resilient yeah yeah so you as a kid stuff happens you don't really really internalize it like you should or it was, or conceptualize it like you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. It happened. I, I wish I could tell you I stayed up late at night and I was crying because they threw rocks at me. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't remember it anyways if I did. Right. My mother took me to the circus and I don't remember. <laughs> my mother took me. My mom has six kids and she took us to the circus and one day we were someplace. She said, that, that's about a circus? What are you talking about circus, lady? <laughs> I never went to the circus. She said, I took you to the circus every year. You don't remember it once. Do not remember the circus once. Your brain blocked out the wrong memories, bro. You're like, why can't I block out the racist stuff? Remember the circus. You know what I, mean? I, was, I guess it was before the racist stuff. Yeah, I guess. She, she took us all. We were little kids. And I literally do not remember. She might those. be lying to you, though. She like, might. if I'm going to have kids, like. Now I'm you gonna... call my mother a liar? <laughs> no. Nah. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Listen, right? What's up? 
No, but when they grow up, though, I'm going to tell my kids. I'm going to just tell my kids. Tell them like, you took them places. Yeah, I'm going to tell them they did whatever. And then my kids are going to be like, I don't remember that. I'll be like, you're too young. Too young. And, they're, and then they're going to be like, my dad was awesome. I'm like, yeah, I didn't do anything, though. <laughs> nah, real talk. She just, she said, I wish I'd have left you home. I'd save some money. <laughs> so you grow up and it's traumatic. And then you kind of start falling in with the wrong crew. And you have this path with, with band, but then they kind of force you to choose up. Right. And unfortunately, at that time, I guess you chose... The wrong way. But it's also like if you've been dealing with abandonment, you're going to choose... Your the, friends. The people that love you. And even if they're loving you the wrong way, you're going to choose the people that like are your Who friends. Who said they were love? I didn't know it was the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The band kids were cool, but there was no connectivity. Mm-hmm. We just all did the same thing and we loved it. Right. But there was no like personal interaction. Right. So then you get involved with them and then how does that escalate into doing like bigger and bigger crimes? It... You you have more and more available time. <laughs> right. Before, I had to be at home practicing, had to go to recital, had to be in band. I had things to do. Now I have nothing to do mm. but crime. And and now I'm hanging out more, and I'm doing more, and I'm, you're around more people doing more stuff, and you just drift further and further down that street. Mm-hmm. And, and so it kind of escalates from like running drugs, selling drugs. Carrying guns. Carrying guns. And then you start kind of like robbing people? Yeah. I was at the park one day. Okay. And... We go to the park. We hustle. Now, after a while, you've been out there for a while, a couple of years. You get lazy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You don't show up to work on time. <laughs> so one time, we out playing around, me and my cousin Tyrone, and we're running late to the park. We're like, man, we're going to miss our money. We realized that our time was from like 3 to 6. There was rules back in my day. The young kids couldn't be out there past 6 o'clock. Because oh, really? the older kids came out at 6 and then kick us out of the park. So And that's just the way it was back then. So I'm like, man, it's about 5 o'clock. We're going to miss all our money. We're not going to get paid. We're not going to get a little $30. So it was like, man. Then I was like, but we need this money. I said, you know something? Dave's in the park. He weak. You know, he, I got his money in. Let's just go take Dave's money. Uh, and it was a great idea. So we went down to the park. We found Dave. Got him in the corner. Took his money. And we ran off. And we got our money for the day. Working five minutes. And I was like, why would we stand in the park for three hours? We can just work for five minutes and get the same money. So instead of dealing the drugs, let's just rob the drug dealers. It was that's what happened. Wow. And we escalated to robbing drug dealers. Right. Because there was parks all around and we started robbing drug dealers. Right. And that became the new hustle. You only get to work five minutes. Yeah. And are you worried about them like fighting back? Like they got weapons, like there was no real weapons back then in the seventies. It was more more fighting. Right. It was a lot more fighting than guns. Gotcha. Back in the days, if you saw fifteen kids, there might be two guns. And a couple of knives and some brass knuckles. Mm-hmm. If you see 20 kids now, they got about 40 guns with them. You think so? And about 30 more at home. <laughs> really? Oh, guns is just so prevalent now, it's crazy. Oh, that's wild. I mean, I assumed it was more, but that seems like... If there's 20 kids, there's at least 20 plus guns. Everybody got their own. Crazy. And it why, was, why are there so many more guns now than back then? Mobility. When we were kids, we couldn't leave the neighborhood. Because black people were restricted to the black neighborhoods. So you couldn't leave and white folks couldn't really come. So there was no real mixing of the people. It was limited mixing. Uh, So at the time, I didn't have access to go to a white neighborhood and buy guns. White people didn't have access to come to my neighborhood and sell me guns. When I was a kid, literally, no joke, there's a movie called Sugar Hill. I lived that. Whereas the mob would come to my neighborhood every day. There was like a little store at the bottom of the hill, a little drugstore. And all the mob guys would be in there all day. They ran the numbers. They ran the drugs. They ran everything out of that store. And if you wanted to do anything in our neighborhood, you had to go through them. 
It was like the outpost for the mob. They were like right there. It just was a bad thing. So that was our interaction. Everything ran through them. Mm. Eventually, times changed, and they got run out of there. But in the beginning, when I was like fifth, sixth, seventh grade, we, if you want to get a little hustle, like the, the newspaper guy would come, the baby shoe man would come. we go down there, we hustle with all of them. we get a little odd jobs running for, running for them. Wow. Like got, we were kids. Remember the baby shoes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before the internet, the guy would literally come to your house and show <laughs> your parents the bronze, the silver, and the platinum baby, and the gold baby shoe thing. And you just pick them out. And the parents would pick them out, and they'd pay for them. But he never knew his way around the neighborhood because there wasn't no GPS back then. Mm. So he'd get a little black kid, and we'd ride with him, and we'd show him how to get around, and we just help him out. Right. And he used to keep in the back seat a case. Where they used to give him cash. And we still cash out of this case. Wow. That's but um, we used to ride around the baby shoe man. Then the guy who ran the newspaper, like the, the globe truck. Oh, fat, cool. He was a cool guy. We ride with him, and we'd run the papers from the truck into the store, come back. Like, take five. Run in, throw five. Want to come back out. Go in the next store. Take four. Run in. Take ten. And we, we, at the end of the day, we get like 10, 15 bucks. So at that point, you're just kind of like raising yourself, really. But the thing is, we hust- white folks had control of the hustles. Well, Back when mean? I was a kid, the mob controlled the hustle in the neighborhood. So it dictated what came in, who got sold to, and what went out. Once they went away and well, mobility well, happened, when mobility happened, you can go, there was no more color lines. You can go to any neighborhood you wanted. Mm-hmm. Like right now, you can go to any neighborhood you want. Right. And nobody's going to look at you crazy. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, you couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. It was driving while black was real in the 70s and 80s. Right. It was like, what are you doing over here? So now you can just kind of like... You go anywhere. Find someone with a gun in a white neighborhood or like go to you a can, gun store or something. Since people can just move freely, you have access to stuff in other neighborhoods. So when I was a kid, the kids from the suburbs couldn't buy alcohol because there's only two liquor stores in town and they wouldn't sell them alcohol. So they would they started hanging out with us. And they, they were shocked that we could walk into a liquor store at 14, grab the drunk dude, give him 20 bucks. He buy what we... We stayed next to him at the store... He buy what we want, hand us the bag, and we go and give him three bucks. Oh, that's crazy. White kids were amazed. They're like, yo, <laughs> what is this? Yeah. They were like, what? and then we go to the house, knock on the door, put $10 on the door, a little cook, cut in the cut. They slide on the bag of weed. They're like, oh, my God. The white kids were amazed yeah. that the drugs and alcohol were available. They wanted them 10 times worse than we did. They just couldn't get them. And so you couldn't even go in that neighborhood just to, like, sell drugs if you wanted I, to. I wasn't. We were just hanging out, chilling. Right. So I met some white kids in the middle town. And they they came to, they came to the city with us to the hood, and they saw the weed and, and the alcohol was available. And they went back and told their friends, "Yo, we sitting around here all weekend trying to find a way to steal a beer. We <laughs> just go to the hood with Andre. We could drink all weekend." And how'd you meet them? I was hanging in the park, out in Cambridge. Yeah, I used to hang out in Cambridge a lot. It was just like a cool place to hang out. And there was some kids from another town called Waltham. We just met up in the park with some girls. We talked to them, and we traded numbers and we. Then we started hanging out, and they invited us out to their town. We invited them out to our town. Oh, wow. But they were amazed <laughs> what we could access. do in our town. Yeah, that's wild. Like, wow, this is great. So then you kind of work your way up from, like, robbing drug dealers, and then are you just robbing regular people at this no, point? No, no, Re- no. Regular people don't have money. Uh, they don't just have cash on them. No. Regular people have jobs, make mm-hmm. 10 bucks an hour, something stupid. They don't have no money. Right. So drug dealers had cash. Did you ever consider like convenience stores or anything like that? No. They don't have money. Uh, They're selling penny candy all day. All right. <laughs> right. So you're going to Drug people... dealers had money. Ah, uh, okay. 
And then how do you actually go from there to then actually getting incarcerated? Robbing drug dealers is against the law. I found out. <laughs> I didn't know. Evidently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Evidently. I've heard that. Robbing drug dealers against the law and carjacking. It wasn't called carjacking then. My case is actually what formulated the carjacking law. Right. Carjacking was created, the law, based on my case. You specifically? Me specifically. What, what do you mean? I went out. My friends went out. They would steal a car. They went out one time to rob rob drunks. You go downtown by the bars and you rob the drunks. Mm-hmm. And they come out of the bar drunk, you push them down, snatch their wallet, you take off. Right. They went downtown to do this one day and the guy was at his car and he had his keys out. So somebody had the great idea after they took his money to take his car too. So they took the car, took the keys, boom, they take off. Mm. It, was a, it was a Camaro. I, next day they ride around their hood in the car. I'm like, yo, that's cool. That's nice. I said, how'd y'all get it? Oh, we took the guy, we took his keys. I was never good at busting the tilt on a car. And then I hated that. Because I'm riding in a stolen car one day. I used to have to like bust the thing and pop the pin, all this craziness. <laughs> we riding down the street in a stolen car one day. I said, yo, Bob, what happened? I mean, what happened? They explained to me how it works. We bust the tilt, you bust the top off, you pull some pin up, and you put something in to keep the pin up so the wheel doesn't lock, and then you drive. Oh, oh that's cool. I had the dumb question. I said, what happens if the pin falls back in? Oh, we, the wheel locks and we die. <laughs> Let me. <laughs> what? I was like, back in the day, you bust a column. Yeah. You, there was a pin. Have you ever seen like the wheel locks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you that... turn the key, the pin slides. Ah. So they would do something to make the pin slide. Then you had to mm. do something to keep the pin out. That's crazy. But if the pin, because there's no key in ignition. Yeah, but this so thing So if the pin up, slides back in, yeah, you're done. it automatically locks. And if you're doing 60, bye-bye everybody. That's crazy. So I was like, I'm off this. Right. Then a couple weeks later, my buddy steal the car with the keys. I had the bright idea. Let's just go take the keys from somebody. Then we can just drive. <laughs> so I started carjacking. I started robbing people for their keys. See, this is the issue. Is you were too smart for your own good. As you're like, oh, let's just rob the drug dealers. Oh, let's just get the keys. Like you're doing the wrong things, but you're smarter. So you're like, oh, I'm going to, let's just do the smart way to do it. So I would go to parking decks. Right. I go upstairs on like the 10th floor. I pick like six cars and I just wait. And you would come back. I run up on you, put a gun in your face, take your keys and your parking ticket. I ride downstairs. (laughs) I pay the parking ticket and I drive off. You took the parking ticket. You had to get out of the garage. (laughs) You're like, yeah, I'm going to pay. I'm not going to break through the thing. Yeah, I had to pay to get out. That's crazy. Were you ever nervous? Like... Like, uh, you want like, a crazy story? Yeah, please. We go there. It was, I never forget. We go up in the parking deck. We run up on a guy. It was a blue Cadillac. Put the gun to him. Give me, give me your keys. He gives me the keys. He says, yo, man, don't do this. It's something about insurance. I don't know about insurance. He's like, yo, don't do this, man. I can't afford it. He was like, man, he's crying. He's really like crying. Like, yo, he had some stuff in the back seat. I let him take it. I don't know what it was. Could have oh, been a million dollars. Take your stuff. I just want the car. Right. Then he's like, yo, man, don't do this, man. He's, he's he get, I said, give me a number. He gives me his number. I said, when I'm done with the car, I'll call you. We took off with the car. We riding around. We went to New Hampshire. On the way to New Hampshire, the car overheats. So we pull over on the side of the road. We get out of the car. Boom. We go to our friend's house. We leave it. The next day, when I went back home, I literally called the guy. I said, yo, your car was in New Hampshire on Highway 93. They probably got it on, on the lot right now. They told it. Whoa. You gave the car back to the No, guy. no I didn't get it. I mean, you I, co- told him where I it had, was. I kept his number. That's... Car broke down. I literally called the guy and said, yo, the car's on the side of the road. That is so crazy. Route 93 North. Did you ever like, feel bad about it Like when you were doing it? Like, no. were you Not at all? No. Why not? I have three rules. You can hit people. 
be able to protect yourself. You can quit anytime you want. Yeah, you didn't break any of those three rules. Mm. Wow. And there was, what, there's no fair in this. I never heard fair. Right. I've never equity. I never like consider it or yeah. you know what I'm saying? None of that stuff. And so when you're doing it, how many people are you doing it with? Well, when I used to take cars, I go by myself. Oh, really? I don't need help. And you were never nervous like like the first time you did it. Are you sitting there like, all right, I'm going to do this, like building up courage? Or are you just like, nah, fuck it, I'm going to go do it? First time I did anything like that was my cousin. Everybody, everybody who does crime was taught by somebody else. Okay. So I had an older cousin who had an addiction habit, and he would go out. He came to the city one time, and he got me. And he took me out with him. And what he would do is they'd ride around in cars, ride around in a car, and they would jump out and go mug somebody and jump back in the car. They run up, we drive, they park, lube up, they get out, run back, mug the guy, and take off. Mm-hmm. So he, that's why I learned how to do that. My oh. older cousin taught me. And how old were you at that time? Um, ninth grade, so I was like 14. Oh, wow. So I learned the game. And then like, people expose you to stuff. That same cousin, or somebody else, a relative, he came, he lived in the suburbs. So drugs were like four times more expensive in the suburbs. He lived in a white suburb. Mm-hmm. He came, saw some food, was like, yo, give me some drugs. I'll go sell them to my neighborhood four times the price and we can split it. They said, nah, dude, you're a dope fiend. We don't trust you. Uh, so they said, well, somehow I came up with a great idea. Send Andre. <laughs> so they give me the instructions. They give me the drugs. He drives me out there. I'm sitting in a hotel. There's prostitutes, dope fiends, and craziness. And they would come to the door and I would give him the, he give me the money. I give him the drugs and he go sell them. He give me the money. Give him the, I did that for a while. Right. And I'm just sitting in this hotel room watching TV. Hmm. Making crazy money. Probably. I'm not making no money. I, I, it was another relative that sent me, so I just got like. You were doing the runner money at that. I was point. doing the runner money. Ah, and were you nervous about police at that point at all? No, because you don't know about it until you don't know about the police until you finally get arrested. But didn't you see other people get arrested and go until like, you get arrested, you don't get it. Hmm. So you're doing all this and you're like, I'm making pretty good money. I don't have anything else to do, and this it, is what it, my older people are teaching me what I should be doing. Right. Hmm. It's not even pretty good money. I don't want to say that. I got sub money. Yeah. <laughs> Enough to go to the store and buy a sub, buy a pair of sneakers. Right. I mean, it's not even a money thing at this point. The older people, like, that's why they sent me, because they can keep the money. Right. So, like, when you were jacking the cars, did you think, like, oh, I can resell the cars? No, nah, just something to cars? ride in. You just wanted to ride around? Just run to ride around them. And just, like... I, the crazy... I used to wash my cars. <laughs> the stolen The stolen cars. <laughs> I had, like, three or four stolen cars. I go, there's a, there's a, right up the street from my house, a thing called Mattapenance Best Car Wash. And I go up there and I buy, you can buy the tokens and you self-wash the car. Right. Man, I kept a whole bag of tokens. I washed my stolen cars. Wow. How many cars do you think you stole? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. A couple. Right. That's crazy. And but I used to literally, when I got arrested in the car that last day, there was like three car wash tokens on the desk. On the, on the <laughs> You're like, on I was going to wash it. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a crazy person. You know? Listen, I'm, I'm not ungrateful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I take care of your stuff. Yeah, it's detailed. You know what I mean? You call the dude, it's like, it's in New Hampshire, okay? It has a brand new wash. I swear on my mother and my son, I took the guy's number. I let him take his stuff <laughs> out the back seat. And I swear on my mother and my son, I called him and told him where his car was. He got it back. It was probably in better condition. No. It was it detailed. Was, it was clean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he didn't tell me he had a bad hose. <laughs> Car overheated. And did, was, did anyone ever like try to fight back? Like, or did you know? And, and, to my, and my luck, nobody ever resisted. Mm. So I, I'm always curious because like, I don't know if you can tell by looking at me. I've never stolen a car before. Um, I might have shoplifted a couple times. <laughs> Actually, I did once on accident. 
I didn't. How mean do you to. shoplift on accident? I, I I had the TV and I walked out on accident. Okay, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I was like. I was. That's what you call white privilege. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I told the guy at the cash register, I was like, I'm gonna borrow this for a little. He was like, All right, that's fine. cool. No, I, uh, I had, I was at like, uh, I was a little kid, and I was like with my mom, like at the store, and I was just like playing with a toy. And you walked then, out, and we walked out, and I was like, Mom, I stole this, and she was like, Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she was so pissed at me, and she was. We turned around, and she made me go apologize to the manager of the store, give it back to them. Right? Why should just buy it for you? Because then she was like, "No, I don't want to reward your bad behavior." If I, you if told you, the truth. Yeah, I know, but she's like, "You stole it in the first place." No, I was you didn't like, steal it. You made a mistake. That's what I said. Stealing is intent. Ah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I didn't intend to steal it. Right. You didn't steal it. You made that was an error. That was a legitimate mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't a conscious decision that I'm going to do this. But I guess in her mind, she was just like, "Be more responsible." Like you know, yeah, you could have been if more. You're in the more, store, like, pay attention. Yeah, exactly. Pay attention. But I'm always curious, like if. Someone would have run up on me and be like, hey, give me your jacket, give me your bike, give me your car, whatever. What should I do? Give it to them. If they have a weapon or you think they have a weapon, mm-hmm. just give it to them. It's not worth fighting. It's not worth dying. It's worth fighting. Hmm. I'll fight you. Right. But I don't want to die for this. There was right. a time because when I used to be a psychopath, I would die for it. Right. That's my thought and that's my thought process. Mm-hmm. I would die for this. What started out as it's okay to hit you. I better protect myself and I can quit. Turned into I can kill you. I'm going to dominate the space and I don't care. Uh, so at eight and nine, it was I'll hit you. At 15 and 16, it's I'll shoot you. Wow. At 21, 22, it's I'll kill you. Mm-hmm. Now, even though shooting people can lead to death, you don't, it's not an intent to kill. Right. It's just an intent to maim, which usually turns into death. Right. So now at this point, are you. Like, if someone crossed you, if someone said something slick to you or, like, insulted you, what is that? What nah, would you do? I've been made fun of since I was a little kid. That didn't hurt. I got thick skin. Right. So even even back then when you were a kid, like. Yeah, I, I was, I was, Mr. Gillis, you remember people that are nice to you. Eighth grade, Mr. Gillis was my seventh period English teacher. I would come to class. We had the same class every day, seventh period, Mr. Gillis. Mm-hmm. Monday, I'm cracking jokes, tearing the room up. Tuesday, cracking jokes, tearing the room up. Wednesday, Thursday. After a while, he said, I can't shut this kid down. Mm-hmm. He said, Andre, if you be good Monday to Thursday, I'll let you tell jokes all day Friday. Oh, wow. And I would literally be good Monday to Thursday just so I can tell jokes on Friday. Oh, so you were like kind of the class clown. Like you like to make everyone laugh. Everything. People make fun of me rightfully for having dirty sneakers and old stuff. So sticks and stones never bothered me. Right. But that made you funny, though. It made me funny. Oh. oh, I was straight comedian. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 my, I get this from my mom. Shout out to my dukes. I'm sarcastic. People want to fight me. I tell jokes to make you want to cry and get you upset. I mean, that's kind of a Boston thing too. Boston people are like sarcastic. You guys cut deep. Like, yeah, we cut. It's crazy. It's just I, I get it from my mom. I don't oh, know. Really? She's a Bostonian for life. Right. But my sarcasm comes from mom. My jokes are like mean, and she'll make fun of you in a way that's like mean. Oof. Oh yeah. She hurt your feelings. <laughs> she make you think about it. Really? Like I, I, I like, want to lead his family. I had enough of you people. <laughs> I'm running away. I'm run- My brother ran away one time. She was like, "Bye." Really? <laughs> I helped helped him pack. She was like, "You you leaving? All right. Just leave the stuff that I bought. Oh, Don't pack none of the stuff that I bought. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna repo it. Just go ahead." I'm saying, "Oh, that's crazy." Nah, mom's mom's was real though. Yeah, and and are you are you guys still still in touch? You guys still talk? I am my mother reborn. Really? You've met my mother by talking to me. If she came here right now and sat in the chair next to me and I got up out of the chair 
and you started talking, she would say some of the things I said verbatim. Wow. Did she have a similar upbringing to you? Like in, in Boston, was it? This is the thing. She grew up in Boston. Um, she grew up with her parents. But I really don't know my mom's story. Oh, because really? back then, the thing was, don't tell your kids your trauma. Hmm. So the stuff that she went through, the stuff that my dad went through, they would never tell us. They kind of just pushed it down. They, 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 yeah, they pushed it down. Hmm. But as a result, maybe they didn't teach you the the things that they wished they had learned. Right. Or so the, the lessons that they had learned because they didn't want to put in, that trauma. In their on belief, you. if they ignore it, it'll go away. Hmm. Yeah, that's so, very common with that generation, I feel like. It's like, so my son didn't get my story. This other thing. Most people don't write books. Yeah. So my son, it's my son. He sees me. I'm dad. We're cool. And then one, he's flying home one time, and he's on a plane. He's like 15, and he reads my book. Mm. He had never read it before. Why well, read the book? His dad, he read the book, and he saw my life. He saw what I'd been through, what I'd come from, and what I made it to, and he had no clue. Wow. Because you're just dad to them. Right. So my mother and father are just mom and dad. I had no understanding that my dad had been had rocks thrown at him, too. I don't understand it. My father grew up in a town where it was just hard on black people. My mother grew up in a time where you had to do this and do that. You don't even think about what your parents grew up with. Mm -hmm. It's the furthest thing from your mind. Right. And there's no books. There's no video. None of that. My son, we were on vacation one time. Everybody's like, how are you going to tell your son you've been to jail? How are you going to tell him? How are you going to tell him? I'm like, I don't know. One day we're in the office. I'm talking to him. I thought I was going to bridge the conversation I thought he was old enough and mature. And I was going to try to. He was like, what? Oh, I saw your YouTube videos. I know all about that stuff. That's why you mean. <laughs> like, what? He, he used to watch Nerf guns, Nerf right. fights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little Nerf gun thing. He had every Nerf gun on the man. Yeah. So he would go on the computer, YouTube, and type in Nerf guns, Nerf wars, and he watched. Never in my wildest dreams did I think he would type my name into YouTube. Oh, crazy. He typed somewhere along the line. He said, Andre Norman. I never used my name. Call, I'm dad. Right. So in my mind, he just, he's going to type daddy. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a different video or whatever. He typed in Andre Norman and all these videos pop up. Right. He knows what I look like. He starts watching the videos. Oh, interesting. And so you would never told him directly. So he learned all of it through your speech. YouTube. Wow. Then I went to broach the conversation. He quoted my videos back to me. I was like, okay, that was easy. Yeah, I mean, that's probably that's a good way to do it. Like, he just got the he got the direct link from you, like all polished, presented, and then he got to ask you questions in real life. Yeah, but as a parent, you're trying to figure out how you're gonna have this deep conversation when kids already watched on YouTube, Instagram, or Snapchat. Yeah, your kids are way, you're blazing past you and everything already. Listen, light years. Yeah, we think they're kids because we would. They think that we think they're kids like we were kids. Nope, history is a different country, bro. Yes. They're, they're growing up in a different country. It's crazy. And my father thought I was a kid like he was a kid. Mm. And that's just how it goes. Right. Okay, so you are like jacking cars. How does that land you in prison? You just got caught one day? No, no. I used to rob cars mm -hmm. for a purpose because I used to rob drug houses. Right. So to get to the drug house, you need a car. Uh, so I go rob somebody for their car. I park it. I kept some for drug robberies and some just drive around it. Right. I used to have like three or four cars. And... I went to go do a drug robbery, and we got caught in the house doing a robbery, and end the story. Cause like the third time I got caught, and they were like, "Okay, you're done." They went to court. They started reading off sentences: seven to ten years. 
nine to 10 years, nine to 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, 15 to 20, 15 to 20, and a five. And said, take them out of here. And that was it. All she wrote. What happened the first two times when you got caught? You make bail. You just, cases take forever and you just keep getting in trouble. Wow. And, and at that point, were you like, oh, I don't want to get caught again? Or, no, this is what you do. This is just life. This is life. That's so crazy. I mean, your mindset now is so different to how your mindset was back then. Like, can you empathize with yourself back then? Like, can you even I imagine was, what your mindset was? I was a misinformed, no direction having person. Right. The misinformation is what I told myself mostly. Mm-hmm. Or my friends who were the same age as me gave me bad information. Right. So I'm getting information from myself or people just like me, which is all bad. And then on top of that, I have no direction. I literally was in the islands last week. And I'm sitting with a lady. We're doing a training for the staff. And I said to the, to the staff, you can start a business and you can do X, Y, Z. Staff lady says, no, no, we can't start a business. Because we work for the government, we can't own businesses. I said, no, lady, you're wrong. That can't be correct. I know it's a form, it's not America, but I'm like, that can't be correct. It Sounds makes crazy. no sense. Then one of the directors said, you can't own certain types of businesses that co- that have a conflict with the prison. Okay. So you can't run a pro, you can't run something that is direct conflict with the prison. So if your company conflicts with the prison, then you can't have it. So I don't know what business conflicts with the prison, but right. hypothetically, whatever that would look like. Mm-hmm. This lady, for 15 years, has been operating on the pretense that she can't have any business because somebody told her that. And she just got some bad information. Bad information that she internalized and made it real. That's so crazy. She was like, I can own a business? Like, sure you can own a business. Is there certain businesses you can't own? And then your brain just changes. Like, when you're told something, I guess your brain just locks into this one narrative of what your life can be. And then someone comes and tells you, no, no, no. That's wrong. It's wrong. And all of a sudden, your whole reality is different. You're like, wait, I could, I can do that? So like, if someone came to you when you were like 16, 17, they're like, hey, you should go to college. Was that even in your brain as like a thing that could happen? No, because two reasons it wasn't in the brain. The way college was presented to me, it didn't make sense. College was just said it's a place to go. <laughs> there was no definition to it. There was no reasoning for it. It was like, you graduate high school, you go to college. It's like, okay. It's just I, another I building. tell you, you're going to move to Denver. For no reason. You're just going to move to Denver. When you finish school, you're going to Denver. I don't want to go to Denver. (laughs) But that's all they tell you. When you graduate high school, you're going to Denver. Right. You don't know what's in Denver. You ain't never been to Denver. You don't know nobody in Denver. You don't know nothing about Denver. What's the point of going there? Exactly. When you graduate high school, you're going to... You might as well tell me I was going to Denver. Right. It's the same people telling me you're going to go to college. I had no context. Right. It was just a title. And I wasn't doing well in school anyways, but it's not enough to tell somebody what they can be. Because most likely... If you need to tell them, they're not in a place to hear it. Mm. So stop saying, I told him, I told him, and talk to him and find out where he or she is in their life. Then give them, if you would explain it to me from the vantage point where I really lived and said, Dre, look that way. You see that? Right behind that building, there's such and such that you need to be at. Not to say, just go down the street. I don't have access to down the street. Mm-hmm. You have to go to the person go where they are, meet them where they're at, and give them directions from there. And walk with them. So many people give directions from where they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all retroactive. Yeah. yeah I got a college this, degree. To this. I'm, a high, I'm a high school. T- you should just go to college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You understand college. You understand the whole process. And you understand why it's important. You just assume that I do. 
Right, right. Yeah, I guess the person telling you assumes that they think that they know why it's important. But if you don't know, it's like, what's the point of even saying it? Exactly. I'm going to Denver. We're going to take a break real quick so I can tell you guys about my morning ritual. Every morning I wake up, hop out of bed, I make some tea, and then I grab my AG1. That's right, Athletic Greens. I grab my AG1, I pour it into my cup, and I drink it. And it's my favorite way to start the day. I feel like it helps my gut health, it helps my brain, it gives my body all the nutrients that it needs to go and power through the day. And the reason I love AG1 is it's just an awesome drink. I don't have to think about pills and like my whole pill container, and I always forget to take them. I just start my morning right before I go to the gym, grab my AG1. Makes everything better. I'll be honest, around the holidays, I'll get a stuffy nose. Seasonal flu going around, sickness, people coughing on you. I grab AG1, makes me feel better. It supports my immune system and keeps me healthy. AG1 makes me feel so good that I'll gift it to my family, my friends, my parents. Anyone that's getting sick around the holidays, anyone that needs more immune system support, I go, hey, take this. It's going to help your gut health, help your mental, help you stay healthy. You got to try it. So if you want to take ownership of your health, today is a good time to start. Athletic Greens is giving you, that's right, you listening to this right now, a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash G-A-G-N-O-N. That's right. Gagnon. Gagnon. G-A-G-N-O-N. That's athleticgreens.com slash Gagnon. Check it out. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so then you get all these crazy charges, your third strike. What does that like next week of your life look like? You get sentenced? I get sentenced. The public I'm defender? Terrified. Just like, what What happens? Like, you got an attorney, you right? You want to do... That's what you want to call him? <laughs> That's what you want to call him? I did 14 years. I ended up with a ton of time. I got arrested. I tell you, I steal cars. Yeah. I used to rob people for their cars. So I'd rob you for your car. Then I would leave and I'd take off. Mm-hmm. Well, I robbed somebody for their car in one city. I got arrested in that same car in another jurisdiction. So when the jurisdiction that finds me, arrests me, in their mind, it's a stolen car. So they write up the paperwork, Andre Norman stole a car, and that's my charge. Mm-hmm. Once they do all that, I make bail, I go home. That police department calls the police department where the car came from and says, hey, we got the car, we found it, we want to send it back. They said, hold up. That thing wasn't stolen, it was taken. It was taken in a robbery. Do you have the picture of the guy who you arrested? They said, sure. They send them my picture, and they say, yep, this is a the guy they robbed for the car. So they put a warrant out for me. Andre Norman, robbery. I stole a car. So they arrest me. I'm in jail with them. I'm going back and forth to court, to both courts. One for the robbery, one for the larceny. I got two pieces of paper. It says Andre Norman, larceny, Honda. Andre Norman, armed robbery, Honda. I go to my lawyer. I say, listen, I'm not the smartest dude in here. (laughs) But I just got to ask you this question. I'm looking at these two pieces of paper. They both say the same thing except for the charge. Is this double jeopardy? I mean, it's like when everybody knows what double jeopardy is. Yeah. I said, is this double jeopardy? He looks at both papers and he tells me no. Just like the lady who said he couldn't have a business. I said, all right, cool. I go back to doing my time. I eventually pled guilty to the larceny first just by chance. Right. And then probably like six months later, they take me to trial and they find me guilty of the armed robbery. I go upstate. I'm six, seven years in. I filed an appeal. The appellate court of Massachusetts said it was double jeopardy. Wow. So meaning, had I, had my lawyer let me go to district court and plead guilty like I did, 
They won a trial for the armed robbery. Well, I got seven to 10 years. Mm -hmm. They won a trial. Had he said, I want to put in a motion to dismiss this case because he's already been tried and convicted of this crime, I'd have won on appeal. Wow. But he didn't do that. He determined that I was guilty. He determined that I should go to prison, and he didn't do his job. Mm -hmm. So what happened is when I got out on bail, when it came time, we're in court, and I see him about to get found guilty, I take off. I skip trial, and I jump bail. Oh, really? And while I'm on bail jumping, I pick up five new cases. The two tens, the two nine to tens, and the two 15 to twenties. I picked up while I was running from the seven to 10. And what were those? Those charges? Arm robbery, arm home evasion, arm carjacking, kidnapping, and robbery. Mm. I'm in court for arm robbery. Right. Had he filed that motion day one, and we it had stopped the trial, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't have needed to go on the run. Right. And I wouldn't have picked up my five new cases. Right. But because the trial was about to end and I was about to go to prison, I took off running and I ended up getting five new cases while I was on the run. Wow. So in theory, I should have never stepped foot in state prison. So all those things added up against you, and then that's how you got such a big, so many years. I had the first case yeah. that should have been dismissed. Right. But instead of going sitting in trial and saying, I'm just going to go to prison, I'm a tough guy, I took off running. I was scared to death. And while I was on a run, I picked up five new cases. Right, yeah. So when they arrested me for those, eventually I got sentenced on all of them. Got you. And, and, I then, guess, and then that's when you go to state. Then I go upstate. And but I should have never stepped one day in a state prison. Have you ever talked to that public defender? I went to prison. I did 14 years. I came home. I get my life together. I'm doing a lot of work. I'm with the president of the United States. I'm with the attorney general. I'm with the governor. I'm with all these different people. I'm on TV a lot. This guy calls me. He calls. I think he sends me an email, but he reaches out to me. And we get on the phone. He says, hey, it's your lawyer. I'm not even going to do his name. He told me. I knew exactly who he was. He says, man, I just want to apologize. I just want to apologize because he got notified the day my case got overturned because he was listed in my case. And then he goes, oh, I fucked that up. No, I no, no. He didn't mess it up. It was intentional. Yeah. If he already thinks you're guilty, then. Dude, if an uneducated high school dropout can identify double jeopardy, <laughs> what is your problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your holdup? So what is your feeling in that moment? It's like, bro, I've served all this time, like my life. I did it. But it's something. I did it. Right. There's the, should I go into prison? At that time, no. Mm -hmm. Did I do it? Yes. Mm -hmm. So there's the technicalities of shoulda, coulda, woulda. The baseline is I was living out of order. Right. There was a technicality that I shouldn't have gone to jail that moment. Did I deserve to go to jail? 100%. Do you think you would have eventually gone to jail? Had it not I might have died. Mm. Crack, crack. I went to jail right before the crack era. Oh, wow. Right before the crack. Had I been on the streets during the crack era, I'd have been a crackhead or a drug robber or dead or something. That's such a crazy way to look at it because it's like this guy screwed you over. He, he judged you before you were judged and you got locked up. But had that not happened. I had 100% been in the street full time. Oh, that's so tough. That is like such a it's like, yeah, obviously good things can come from bad situations. But it's not. it wasn't his decision. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the difference. It worked out. It worked out, yeah. but it wasn't his decision. Right. That wasn't his lot in life to say, this kid should go to prison, and I'm going to help him go to prison. Yeah. Now, if this is how you feel about me, how are you representing me during trial? Yeah, he's just going to be like, all right, don't give him life. Like they're gonna, He's just going to help you not get the full sentence. Don't give him death penalty, but put him in there. Yeah. yeah. He determined that I should go to jail, and this is a guy representing me. So, this is, again, I did it. Yeah. 
every case I was charged with, I did. Yeah. So it's not as if I'm saying, woe was me. That's a technical circumstance that yeah. I could have jumped through a little loophole. You got to wonder, though, how many guys has he represented that didn't do it? That he goes... How many guys did he send to prison? Yeah, exactly. That maybe did or didn't do it or didn't do it to the full degree that they were charged with or whatever else. If you're looking at him for help, yeah, you ain't getting it. Yeah. Not that guy. That's tough. And so did you forgive him? I let it ride. I didn't go hunt him down or anything. I said, you know what's up? This is my thing with forgiving him. Yeah. Forgave him to the extent you can forgive him. I just let it go. I wasn't ready to go to lunch with him. Right. <laughs> he wouldn't go to lunch. Oh, really? So I'm not ready. He said, let's sit down. I want to go to lunch with you. I'm like, nah. It depends on the restaurant. No. A good restaurant? No. <laughs> At that moment, it was a no. Right. I wasn't ready to sit down with the guy who I know intentionally sent me to prison. Yeah. No, that's, that's a different level. But yeah, I guess you can compartmentalize and be like, I forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I can forgive you, but I'm not going to lunch with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's reasonable. I think that's reasonable. Dude, dude, I, I've never thought bad about him. It is what it is. I put myself in a circumstance to be judged or to be set or crossed out or whatever you want to put it. So I'm not mad. That's what comes with the life. Yeah. But I'm not going to lunch with you either. So then you end up in prison. Go to prison. And Scared to death. And what does that first week look like? How old are you at that time? I'm 18. I got a gazillion years. I'm scared to death. I'm thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen to me? Who's going to, who, what's going to happen? How's it going to happen? Who's, it just, it just every bad thing you can think of is running through my mind. Right. So I said, listen, what I'm going to do is I've been a fighter my whole life. When I get to the unit, I'm just going to fight the first two that comes near me. I'm going to let them know that I'm a fighter. That's the most important thing you ever can do. If you go to jail, <laughs> let them know that you can fight and that you will fight. If you ain't going to fight for it, it's gone. And a lot of things can get gone. So, so that's your advice for me if I ever go to jail. My advice for anybody. Yeah. If you go to jail, you got two options. Let me give you the second option. You got two options. One, you better let people know that you are willing to fight. And win, lose, or draw, you have to be willing to fight. Mm-hmm. That is option one. Okay. If they say, hey, man, I like them sneakers, put your hands up. Right. Hey, man, I think you're cute. Put both hands up. <laughs> run. It run. No, no. You can't run. Okay. I can't fight. run. They know where to run to. They're going to think I'm cute, bro. I know it. I just know it. They're going to see my hair. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> might want to straighten it out before you get to it. <laughs> so, okay. You, so either I, that become a Christian do the Jesus thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I could, yeah. You can go Jesus. That, that could work. That yeah. could work. <laughs> you could have gone Jesus, too. You should have done that. Nah. <laughs> but um, one of two things. One, be a fighter. You ain't going to be the best fighter, but stand up for yours. Yep. People will respect you if you fight. Even if you get your ass kicked. If you if you don't back down and you fight, people will respect you. And it's the law of the land that people will stand to your defense. Don't even know you. Oh wow! If you are standing for yours, like no, I ain't going for that. You're wrong for you're just bullying me. Mm. See, people don't like bullies. So if people are just bullying you because there's more of them or they're bigger than you, most people, such as myself, don't like bullies. I hate bullies. Right. There's a lot of people who hate bullies because a lot of people are bullied by their fathers. Or bullied by older people when they were kids. Uh, so even though they became this big time gang member, they were bullied as kids. Most of them. And they hate bullies. Hate bullies. Interesting. So when they see you bullying somebody and he's standing up for himself, it's something inside of them that's gonna identify with you. And they're standing up for themselves. They're gonna come, they're gonna come to your aid. Okay. So that's option one. I gotta Option fight. one, you gotta be a fighter. Option two? Option two, this thing called protective custody. Walk over to the gate or walk to the closest hill and say, I am scared for my life. Put me in protective custody. They will put you in a housing unit with a bunch of people who are scared as well. Mm-hmm. And there's a very there's a lot less robbery, beating, and raping going on. And you'll be segregated 
for your time. Mm. Now, you won't have access to the big yard. You won't have access to a lot of stuff, but you'll be safe. Mm. Those are option one and option two. You chose option one. Yeah. And what happened? I had a fight. <laughs> I got to the unit. Dude was like, yo, Dre, whoa. I dropped the bed. I threw my hands up. It was my buddy Melvin from the dummy class. We was in the third grade together in the dummy class. <laughs> I was like, yo, what you doing here? He said, man, what you doing here? What took you so long? We've been waiting for you. Really? The whole prison was waiting for me. Wow. When you got, you went to college? Yeah. From your high school? Yep. High school, college. Mm-hmm. When, you got to high, when you got to college, you're in your second year, you're a sophomore, they tell you, hey, little Bobby from your high school's here. You weren't shocked. No. You were expecting him. Yeah. Like, oh, that's cool. I thought you maybe were going to go a different college, but you came to this one. What's yeah. up? Yeah. It's the same thing in prison. All the guys who went down that bad road, they know who's coming behind them. Oh, wow. So you show up. And They're expecting you. You immediately click up with all them. They're like, they're like, hey, Dre, where you been? Wow. So I click up with them, and they teach me how to do time. Are you a little bit less scared at that point? Because you're like, a lot less scared. Now I got Because I'm crew. around people I know. Right. And did you know that they were there? Because you don't necessarily know where your boys are. You don't know sent. who's there. When you come in, the last thing you're thinking about is who's in this building. Right. You just think who's going to hurt me or who's, who's going to take hurt my me? stuff. So who's going to hurt me? Who's going to hurt me? Who's going to hurt me? Right. So I get with my guys, and I remember something happened with one of the homies, and there's this big commotion. Then one of the guys that come to me was like, yo, Dre, man. I'm saying? I went to homie. I went to my big homie. The guy above me and told him what happened. Later on that day, it all went bad. And then we then. They went to go beat up the two dudes from the other side of town who was talking about the homie. When they ran up on them, like, yo, man, send your guys to the yard. They got to get a beating. They was out of order. Mm-hmm. They said, no, we weren't out of order. Andre was in a conversation. How can we be disrespectful if one of your guys is in a conversation? Oh, shit. So they came back to me. It was like, yo, was you in this conversation with these two dudes? I was like, yeah. So they had to get them two dudes a pass because the stuff that they said was absolved because I was in a conversation. Interesting. Now, the truth is, I was in a conversation, but I reported it to my homie. He just didn't report it up the chain because he didn't like to do what it was about. So uh, they take me out to the yard. We all go to the yard to have a conference. So we get the whole gang out on the yard. There's like 30 of us out on the yard. We're at the end of the yard where they kill people. <laughs> so we stand on the handball court. I'm like, okay. And this is when I finally realized who I was hanging out with. 20 dudes doing life sentences. It never dawned on me before. As it did that moment, I'm hanging out with 20 full-fledged murderers, and they're right now in front of me, in my face, talking about what should happen to me for my violation, because they put a rule out on somebody, they had to take it back because of my discretion. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, they're like, yo, we should do this. I'm like, standing like, my first thought, I ain't gonna lie, was to run. Yeah. So I should just take the fuck off running right now. Yeah. And I looked at the end of the yard, it was a big 40-foot wall. (laughs) Can't run nowhere. Yeah. Can't get out. So I stood there, and they had the little debate, and they went around and went around, and Dominic came up to me and said, listen, we're going to give you a pass this time, but let you, let it be known. If you fuck up again, we're going to handle it, and we handle our own. Then we all walked off the yard together. Wow. And I can tell you from that day to this, I never made a motherfucking other mistake ever. Wow. I'm standing there, dudes contemplating killing me. Is that that's what the conversation was? like? Fucking me up, yeah. They were like, oh, let's just beat him? And well, then other people was, were like, no, let's kill him? Wow. It was a little bit of everything. And I'm standing like, they're talking about me. Yeah. And ain't shit I can do about it. I just got to stand here listening and hope this shit come out favorable. Mm. I thought about running, but there's nowhere to run to. And why do you think they give you a pass? Because, I don't know. I can ask Dom. I never asked. Really? But he turned to me and said, dude, 
We're giving you a pass this time. So what should you have done? You're in a conversation. What I should have done, what I had the chance to do when I was sitting on that yard is say, well, I did report up to my G right here. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was supposed to do. And he's looking at me like, please, God, Dre, don't tell him you told me because he's probably fucked up two or three times. Right. He's had his pass. So he'll get whooped if... I don't know what was going to happen, but he yeah. was looking at me like, please, God, Dre, don't tell him the truth. So I could have put him under the bus. Would that be snitching if you did that? Nah, nah. That was facts. It was facts. Mm -hmm. Yo, Dre, you out of order? Nah, I, I reported. I did what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Snitching, which has gone totally outside of the box, is when you have a criminal who's participating in criminal activity and to get out of his sentence or punishment, he confides in the authorities... Mm. And let them know what his co-defendants and his cohorts were doing. It's got to be a trade, a trade with the feds. Is Police. You have to go to the police yeah. or some kind of authority and tell them what's going on with other criminal activity. Right. That's snitching. Right. You it's, just being honest about what you did no, in the situation. that was internal family yeah. business. Gotcha. They ain't no law. Snitching involves the law. Gotcha. It's become like a new... I mean, I heard um, soccer moms talking about, don't snitch. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> There's a police involved in the soccer game or something? <laughs> the word has gone to shit. Right. There was a time to call somebody a snitch. Where I came up, you had to have paperwork. You had to have his actual court documents that show that he testified against somebody. Mm. Or there had to be somebody who was standing there to say, I was in court and I saw him testify. Oh, wow. None of this, I think he was a snitch or you must have snitched. I mean, they're just taking this... I'm out the streets, man. They didn't change the game. <laughs> when, white, when white soccer moms start talking about people snitching, right? I'm cool. That's so funny that you're like a purist about snitching. You're like, come on, let's be literal. Let's be by the book. Because people right? could kill for that. When yeah. I came up, you could kill for being a snitch. Or even claiming that someone was a snitch. You claim someone was a snitch, you better have paperwork. Uh, you couldn't just arbitrarily call somebody a snitch without paperwork. Right. It's just like, yo, where's the paperwork? Right. Uh, 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 well, I heard, well, our sister's cut. Nah, that, that didn't fly. This is your rep. Everything back in the day was your word, your reputation, and manhood. Mm -hmm. And you're challenging all three when you call somebody a government witness. Yep. That's the whole thing. Snitching is you're a government witness. Mm. Government witnesses have paperwork. Yep. It wasn't like, nah, you told his paperwork somewhere. So then from that day forward, you're with your Man, crew. Man, listen, I am so focused you ne on like, never fucking up again. It's yeah. not even perfect. Because I ha I saw my life flashing. Yeah, I mean, it did. When I walked off that yard, I'm like, man, this is serious. Yeah. I wasn't taking prison serious. You don't take it serious until some shit like that happens to you. Yeah. And I started taking it uber serious. Yeah. That everything was life or death. Because mm. I saw myself possibly dying. Right. And at the hands of my friends. Yeah, that's... I it's mean, sobering. Yeah, that's sobering. And so how do you navigate the rest of prison from that time? Like, are, are there any parts that you enjoy? Are there any parts that, like, you like? Enjoyable parts of prison. Part one. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Enjoyable parts of prison. There's got to be one little sliver that you're like, oh, this is, the, this is the one part that I look forward to during the day. Anything like that? Spoken as, as a person who's never been to prison. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, you know what I'm saying... The people in the coal mines yeah. have a glimmer of hope while they're down there breathing in all that damn dust yeah, and coal. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, nah. What's the good part about being down there and sucking in some coal? Yeah, nothing. Nothing. Yeah. There's nothing good about it. You make do with your day. But what I did was my big homie Dominic, he was like boss of bosses at the time. So I'm in his gang. When I get there, they say, where you from? If you went to prison right now, they can say, where you from? Mm -hmm. And wherever you're from, those are the guys that you're going to be around. No guys will come claim you. You're part of their team, gang, whatever you want to call it. So I got off the bus. They said, where are you from? They said, oh, you're with those guys. 
Then they would come get you. It's like, oh, you're from the neighborhood. So they know my older sister. We went to the same school, the district school, to this, to that. We're all from the same hood. Right. So we went to the same store, the same this, the same that. And so they claimed me as one of the neighborhood guys. And Dominic's boss of bosses. So I used to follow him around. Everywhere he went, I went. And mm-hmm. I'd just watch him. And I watched how he interact with people. I watched how he talked to people. I watched how he handled situations. I grew up illiterate. So I didn't read or write very good. And even when I did learn to read or write, I wasn't good at it. So I learned by watching and listening. Mm. So I watched and listened to Dominic. And I watched how he interact with people, how he talked to people, how people talked to him, what they said in front of him, what they said away from him. And I just learned by watching him. And I'd come to the lunch every day because I'm like broke. I got, I'm not no rich dude. I'm broke. I'm a young kid in jail. I, my parents ain't got no money. I, Dominic, give me a pack of cigarettes. Give me a pack of cigarettes. I go back, I chain smoke. I'm a chain smoker. <laughs> Next day, come to lunch, Dominic, give me a pack of cigarettes. Give me a pack of cigarettes. He controlled like cigarettes. For, he had thousands and thousands of packs. So every day I come to him and get a pack of cigarettes. Then one day he said, yo, man, you ain't got no hustle? What are we talking about? I don't know. Nothing. He, got, he went got a carton of cigarettes. He gave me a whole carton of cigarettes. He said, yo, this is what you do. You take three or four of these, you sell them. You know what I'm saying? And then you smoke a couple. You know what I'm saying? And you sell the ones, you sell half of them for two, you just call them two for once. You give away one pack, you get two back. You know what I'm saying? So you sell them and then you, you get ahead. You know what I'm saying? That all this begging stuff got to stop. Mm. I'm like, all right. He gave me one carton of cigarettes. I went to the unit. I got a car. I went out. I loaned out eight packs of cigarettes and I smoked two. I got 16 back. I smoked two, I loaned out 14. I got 28 back. Mm. I smoked three, I loaned out 25. I got 50 back. Then it was probably like two months later, we were in the cafeteria. Dominic said, yo, you ain't asked me some cigarettes in a while. What's happening? I said, do what you told me to do. He said, what do you mean? I said, you told me to, you gave me a carton of cigarettes, you told me to sell some, keep some, sell some, smoke some. I've been doing it. Mm. He said, yeah, he said, I mean, God. I said, I got 250 cartons of cigarettes in the block. Really? <laughs> he said, what? I was like, yeah, I got like 250 cartons of cigarettes in the block. Wow. He said, man, go get them cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> he sent someone down to collect the cigarettes. I, I had people holding cigarettes from me. I was paying people to hold them because I did exactly what he said, do no deviation. Right. <laughs> I just kept selling cigarettes, selling cigarettes. You learned the basics of investing. I didn't blink. No, no. I didn't learn to, I did exactly what he said to do. Right. And I didn't deviate. Right. I didn't have a plan B or option B. I had started with 10, yeah. 8 went to 16, then 15 went to 30, and then 25 went to 50, and then 45 went to 90. Wow. And then it just kept going. Was, was he proud of you? It, it was the first time I got like, yeah, you did good. Ah, uh, we gave like, you a task and you followed. It wasn't it even a task. <laughs> it was just like, do this, just get out of my face. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Stop begging me for cigarettes. Show some initiative. And you did. And I did it. And you showed y'all I can then hustle. Then he gave me control of the whole end of the prison with cigarettes. Ah. Uh, so can you explain to me how like the underbelly of like the prison sort of like black market works? Okay. Like, what is that how does that work? What's some dude's name? Um, they wrote a book. Freakonomics. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Dubner. Dumb, exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Dumbner, yo, that's made up shit for white people. Really? Oh, so Freakonomics is like kind of bullshit when it comes to like the prison stuff. When it comes to really, when it comes to the real part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's some dumb shit. I've read that book and I was like, this is crazy. Because you've ne- you never been to the block. Nope. So all you know is what he told you. Of course. You have nothing verified by. Nope. 
I can verify his bullshit. Okay. Tell me, how does it actually work? How about this? You take a prison with 2,000 people in it. Okay. Let's make 50% of them drug addicts, which is a small number. It's usually like 90%. We're just going to say 50% of drug addicts. You had 1,000 drug users. What kind of drugs? It doesn't matter. Okay. So we're going to take heroin. So heroin at the time cost you $50 a bag. You had 1,000 drug users. If you can sell each one of them a bag of drugs per day, what is that? 50,000. 50, times seven days. Mm. 350. Times four, four weeks. Yeah, you're making legit money. Yeah, it's millions. You hit over a million. That's if you can sell each addict one bag per day. In prison? In prison. How, okay, so how do, how do you get drugs in prison? Whole other story. Um, drugs come in. Okay. <laughs> That's the best I can tell we'll you. leave it at that. Drugs come in. Okay. You know what I'm saying? They come in all kinds of wonderful ways. But once they're in, this is back in the days before technology, you give me drugs, I'd go, we cut them up, and just like any other kind, you're up in there, you're a rich white kid from the suburbs, you mm -hmm. got caught up doing some dumb stuff, your parents, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, they all love you, they're going to send you money. Mm -hmm. So I know you're a good client. If I can sell you drugs, I know you're good probably for like $600 a week. Mm. So I'll sell you $600 off of drugs I know your parents will pay it Because I get hooked I'm writing letters to my parents You're already hooked You came in a dope fiend uh, So I'm not getting you hooked You're already hooked Gotcha But I know your circumstance mm -hmm. I know you come from a family with means Right So I can sell you more drugs Than I can the guy from the project Would you protect me? For a fee <laughs> <laughs> But if you know I'm a good client And you know I'm no. getting you money every week No for If you ain't paying for protection You don't get protection And this is the thing about protection Right Protection's fake if you're uh, somebody that needs protection, and at least for me, I can't speak for nobody else. Mm -hmm. My thing is, I'll protect you until it's a conflict. So for the most part, I try to like wave stuff away from you, keep stuff off you. Mm -hmm. But if you ever get in conflict with a true soldier or a real guy, yeah, you got to handle it. You got to take the beating. Wow. I'm not going to put my hands on a true soldier for you. And what do you mean by true soldier? If somebody's like really a gang member or if somebody's a solid guy yeah. and you do some dumb shit to offend them, you got to take the ass with me. And I come to you and I go, bro, I, you gotta take the ass with me. I, I paid you to offend me. You got to take the ass with me. Mm. <laughs> I'm not going to clean up something you've actually done. Right. I'm, now, not, I'm not a henchman for you. I'm going to help you stay out of trouble. I'm going to do my best. And if you get in trouble, that's on you. I'm going to do my best to, to get you away from the dumb shit. Gotcha. We had guys in our unit where... Back in the days, if you were a lame or weak, you couldn't have anything. You couldn't have soap in your room. You couldn't have shower shoes. You couldn't have radio. Dudes would beat you up and take it. Full stop, no blank. That's just what it was. That's just what it was. So what happens is I have like four or five guys we were protecting. So at every night about 830, I'd put shower shoes on my door, on my on my bars, put the soap on my bars, put the shampoo on my bars and stuff. And then you would come, take the shower shoes, take the soap, take the shampoo, go take a shower, come back. Put the shit on my boss. You couldn't keep that in yourself. People beat you up and take it. Oh, what I and people would pay to do that. You you, you pay protection, and now I'd put yourself on my boss, and I hold you down. Oh, crazy! But I wasn't. If you put it in your cell, and somebody runs in there and beats you up, That's I can't do anything about that. Right. I'm not going to do anything about that. Right. There's lines to protection. Okay. So okay. So heroin gets in. Heroin comes in. You find some good clients. Oh, they're there. You get them hooked. 80, or they're no, already hooked. Eighty no. percent of people in jail in jail for drug related crimes. Ah, so they already have an experience. Tell me what happens. Tell me what happens. Got you. And you just sell to people with habits. Mm. They're doing all day doing nothing. So you just sell it to them. Mm -hmm. But it's easier for me to show you than just tell you because it doesn't make sense. This is out the newspapers. This isn't any any like great breaking news. Mm -hmm. This is just one guy selling drugs in a jail. It's about 
2,000 people in this jail. Yeah. What do you think he's making a year? I mean, if that math, that math we just did before, I'm like, if he's making a million dollars a year, I'd be shocked. What's that say? Don't say the name of the system. 20 million in drugs, 40 firearms seized in drug trafficking operation. Right. Wow. That's just one prison. I mean, that's that's insane. 20 million. So, okay, so that's a lot of money. If you're in prison, let's say you're doing life, what are you doing with $20 million? Um, you just buy shit. So you're buying cigarettes. You buy stuff. And once you got $20 million, like... Now you can pay for lawyers. That's wild. So people can actually use the black market to get enough money to... A them. lot of people use black market to take care of their families. Right. To take care of their kids, to pay for legal expenses. Yeah. It's not the wisest thing in the world, but if I got a choice of selling drugs in jail... And paying for a good lawyer or just sitting here and just doing time. Right. Then it's going down. You're in the system. You're coming up. You're dealing in like, are, are you in like sort of like the underground drug oh, market in prison? I work for, work with, the gang I'm in can, is the lead gang. Okay. So what happens is, take any prison system, there are gangs that operate with inside the system. Right. And there's the strongest gang to the weakest gang. And how, how does the strength work? Is that size or is that physical like ability? It's um, the imposing of physicality on the yard. Gotcha. So you need soldiers. Like the America is the strongest, has the strongest um, army. Mm-hmm. We're not the biggest country. Right. We have the strongest army. Right. We have the best weapons and the best technology and the more soldiers. Strategy. And strategy, all that stuff. So it's not so much Ukraine got finished fighting Russia. Come on. Yeah, yeah. So they came to them in the beginning. And was like, yo, we'll send a plane for you. I remember the. I remember it. They said, yo, we're gonna send a plane to evacuate you to the president of Ukraine. You know what he said? Hmm. Send me bullets. Wow. He, he said, send me bullets or send me guns. Yeah. He said, don't send me a helicopter. Send me guns. Because he's ready to fight. They were like, no, no, no. Russia's attacking you. We're gonna <laughs> send you. We're gonna evacuate you, the president, nope. to safety. Nope. He was like, nah, don't send me no helicopter. Send me guns. Send me a helicopter with guns. Yeah. <laughs> He said, I'll die here. Wow. And that's kind of the mentality there. Some people have his mentality. Mm-hmm. Small country, solid soldier, solid leader. You get a big country with a leader with don't have solid solid leadership. Mm-hmm. Leadership is everything. So how do the how do the leaders kind of segregate within the, the gangs? No, I mean And does everyone have to be in a gang? You don't have to be, but you're gonna come across one. Like, yeah. You don't have to be, you saying you don't have to be caring about the United States, but if we invade your country, you're done. Gotcha. <laughs> you, hey, I don't care about the U.S., but if they run up in your country, you got problems. So if I go to prison, I gotta at least acknowledge that they exist. Gotcha. And don't it, don't mess with people in specific. No, no, it's not so much don't mess with. It's not to that extreme. If you're a country, mm-hmm. let's just say um, you're the Bahamas, because okay. I got friends in the Bahamas, mm-hmm. and you're a small country, you're chilling, you mind your business. You don't attack the United States of America if you're the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work well for you. Right. It's not going to be a fast fight or a fair fight. So you got to be aware of where you stand in the hierarchy. Exactly. Gotcha. I'm and saying, you so were part of the biggest system. I happen to be from America. <laughs> <laughs> so how many dudes were in your gang in this block? Um, it wasn't my gang. It was Dominic's gang. Gotcha. And it was like statewide. It's not like we have territories in Guam, Puerto Rico, <laughs> Hawaii, you're saying these islands are positioned for reasons. Right. But um, at the time, it was like 50 of us total. Oh, wow. Okay. And so where do you fit in the, in the Towards game? Towards the bottom. 
just off rip. And then what are your duties as the first gang member? Not not when you come in, you just part of it's like it's like the team, the fam. Yeah. Um, like I was hustling cigarettes. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You just be there. Yep. You know what I'm saying it's like what is this what is the job of a soldier? Mm-hmm. To wait for war. Right. So every day we would wake up and we'd go out to the yard and we would work out and all that type of stuff. We would hide knives and we just get ready for war. Right. You're saying get ready for the daily hustle and get ready for war. And Dominic was the leader. Dominic, hands down. No blame. And he was a great leader. For me, he was. Yeah. And he really took care of you and kind of like mentored you. I mean, his mentorship was like, he's me before years older in the sense Mm. of he didn't read and write that well. He never great relationship with his dad. He grew up in the streets. So he's traumatized. He's been through a lot of stuff. And he's teaching me from his lack of empathy emotional connectivity and so he's teaching me what he's been taught right which has got him the way he is mm. he's where he is based on what he's been taught right now he's teaching me so i love him because he's holding me down of course if not for him i don't survive prison and he's doing his best like he's doing what he thinks is right for you to take care of you exactly yeah so what happens is in prison we don't look at it as oh he's traumatized or oh, he's teaching me wrong of course that word it, is yeah, yeah it's, it's it's different in prison because Minus his teachings, my prison time is dramatically different. Minus his presence, anything could have happened to me. Mm. I mean, I went through my entire 14 years unscathed. I went through 14 years, no fear. Other than that first couple of weeks, just being nervous. But as far as worrying about dying or being hurt or being robbed or being raped, never had that fear. Oh, really? Because of Dominic and being part of his team. Wow. So I never had the fear like other people had to deal with. You know what I'm saying? Right. I had to deal with going to segregation. I had to deal with catching cases. I had to deal with being shipped across the country. But that was by a byproduct of being part of the lead team. Right. And he, he taught us lessons. Every single day was a lesson. And if you was paying attention, you learned the lessons. If you weren't, you didn't. I'm in the block. He doesn't, we don't live in the same unit. And there's a run in the unit. Long story short, me and a guy get into an argument. Guy says, yo, well, after lunch, I'm like, yo, we can get this in right now. He says, no, after lunch, we go down to the library, and we can square off, and we can fight. I said, cool. He doesn't know what gang I'm a part of. <laughs> so I go to lunch, and I'm sitting at the table with Dominic. I said, yo, Dominic, I got beef after lunch. He said, yeah. He said, with who? Told him the guy, and he said, well, I thought he was asking what it was about. He skipped past that. He said, question. He said, what? He said, can you beat him? I said, no, 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 check this out. I'm going to go down and I'm going to square up. I'm ready. Mm. He said, no, no. Can you beat him? I said, I got the knife you gave me, man. I got the club. I'm going to hit him with the club. Hit him with the move. You know what I'm saying? Seven taught me these moves. I'm going to what? He said, man, shut the fuck up. I asked you a question. Can you beat him? The whole table quiet because he raised his voice. He was like, like, oh, shit, you fucking up. I was like, no. He turned and said, yo, B, you got the fight. Your monk, you got the back. Your Dre, you watch the door. I made this like, the fuck are you talking you about? Door duty? I'm door I'm trying to prove myself. Yeah, I thought you'd be I'm, proud of me. Like, yo, I'm, tra- I, I'm in a scrap. I'm I'm gonna scrap. I'm about to prove myself. Yeah. He said, motherfucker, we don't take losses. Whoa. And this ain't about you. It's about us. And we don't lose. So play your fucking position. Watch the door. Cause we don't lose. At no time is this about you. It's about us. I was like, Okay. <laughs> when you I, put it that way. You put it that way. Because I was willing to risk getting my ass whipped to prove a point. Right. That I would fight. And what does that do for the reputation of our gang if I get beat up? Mm. It damages it. Right. He wasn't willing to let me lose to make us look bad. 
And he asked me. He asked me before he put somebody in my place, can you beat him? Had I said yes, he didn't let me fight. I told the truth and said no. Mm. I couldn't beat this man one-on-one. Right. It just wasn't going to happen. You know what I'm saying? So he he took appropriate measures and he put somebody in that he knew would win. Wow. So at the end of the gang, at the end of the day, our gang is undefeated. <laughs> Not just Andre tried shit. Right. And what happened to that dude? He, he, oh, he got his ass whipped. <laughs> I'm curious, were there any white dudes in your gang? No. Really? Because it was all from the block and there were no white dudes on the block. This is the craziest thing. It's the neighborhood you're from. Yeah. At the time, there was no white guys in my neighborhood. Uh, well, I take that back. When I was a kid, I was probably in like elementary school. I used to play with this kid named Nathan. We was cool. Came up. Make it to middle school. I'm dating this chick named Pam. You know, in middle school, like, she's your girlfriend for, like, two weeks. Yeah, yeah, and that's and the longest gone. time yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah, But it's a long two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and she, Pam dumped me, whatever. She moved on. It's no big deal. Then my cousin came and was like, yo, Dre, let the white boy take your girl? I like, what white boy? He said, Nathan. Nathan ain't no white boy. Hey, what of us? What are you talking about? <laughs> nah, man, white boy took your girl. I mean, what are you talking about? Then he said, Nathan's white. We're in, like, the eighth grade. <laughs> No, Nathan's is the third grade. I was like, get out of here. What are you talking about? <laughs> then I thought about it. His mother was white. Yeah. His sisters were white. Yeah. When I actually sat down and thought about it, hmm. and I looked, I looked, I started looking at them in the yard. His and name thinking, is Nathan, you know? Not even. <laughs> I mean, I really had to stop and like ponder this shit. Right? Yeah. And he was white. <laughs> he turned out to be fully white. He turned out to be his parents. Was, I never saw his dad. Ah. Saw his mom, right. saw his sisters, yeah. never saw his dad. But he was just one of us. He was just a poor kid. <laughs> I've, n- I've never seen your dad, but I know that you're black. We got light-skinned people. Yeah, that's fair. There's no dark-skinned black pe- white people. That's fair. That's fair. So in your mind, you're just like, wow. He's just I, one of us. I guess he's white. I only saw, I going by his house, I never really went in. Right. But I stopped by the fence and waved to his fam's mom and sisters, but never really engaged him. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. And my whole life, because I'm never around white people. Right. Yeah, you made that 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 comment in the documentary that I thought was interesting. Is you were like, uh, who are these people that are being mean to us? Yeah. How old were you when you like met a white person for the first time? Met them and see. I mean, you, I guess like you encounter friend. them. You encounter white people as black in America just by, by default. But as far as like in having a conversation, seventh grade, I hit a girl with a book because she was laughing at me. And I, I was embarrassed. I hit her with a book. And my dad, get, I don't know if my dad gave me the beating, but my stepdad gave me the beating of a lifetime because I hit a girl because I hit a white girl. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, in middle, in elementary school, there was white kids in our school because now we're three years into busing. So I'm in class with white kids and right. they're just kids. Nobody told me that they were white. They're just other kids. Right. And as a kid, you don't have this idea of racial constructs. Right. So we're in and... class. First grade, they're throwing rocks at us, but we don't know why. Right. Third grade, we're just in class, and it's just other kids dead, and they just happen to be white. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And you don't think they're white. They're just there. Interesting. And then you're finally aware of it around seventh grade when that no. happens. I mean, she was just another kid. Literally. Right. First grade to get to like high school, that's where the divide super comes. Oh, that's so Because I'm, I mean, I'm going to a predominantly black school. Right. So the white kids are like sprinkled in. Are there a lot of racial segregations within the gangs in prison? Oh, 100%. That's like a real thing. That's real stuff. And how does that work? So you have like... It goes back to when you come in... Ah, uh, your block. Is what, what neighborhood you're from. Right. That's in the state prison. Mm-hmm. In the state prison is what neighborhood are you from? You're with those people. Right. 
I'm in the state system for like a year. I caused so much havoc, they kicked me out. They sent me to the federal system. When I get to the feds, I go to a place called Lewisburg first, off the chains. And we leave Lewisburg, they send me a place called Oklahoma, El Reno. I get to Oklahoma, they say, where you from? They say, Massachusetts. They say, oh, you got a homeboy here. All right. They take me all the other, all these little blocks and cuts, knock on the door. They say, yo, man, tell Jimmy you got a homeboy here from Massachusetts. I'm standing there. White dude walks out. I'm looking at him like, okay, what's this? He said, yeah, where you from? I said, Boston. He said, where you come from? I said, Walpole. He's like, you smoke? I was like, yeah. He said, wait right there. He went back inside and came out with his giant bag of food and cigarettes, and he gave it to me. He said, yo, if you need anything, I'm right here. I was like, all right, cool. I went back to my unit. Weird, it was different. Mm. Then I ended up in a place called Terre Haute. Terre Haute was like gladiator school in the 80s for the feds. Indiana, right? Indiana. Yeah. So I'm in Terre Haute. I get there. They're like, yo, you got a homie here. Go down to the block. Dude named Eric. White dude. He come out, walk the yard. He's like, yeah, boop, boop. There was three. It was four of us on the yard from Boston. The other three were white. Mm-hmm. He's like, yo, if you need anything, boom, 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 you come see me. I'm like, all right, cool. In the feds is what states you're from. Interesting. In the states is what, what block you're from. Mm. So in the states is white, black, white, black, white, black, Latino. In the feds is state. Interesting. And then I remember there was an old, I forget the old dude's name now. Um, it was an old white dude. He was like, oh, like 70-something years old, could barely walk, had thick glasses. But I used to get the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So I'd go to the block, pick the old white dude up, and take him out to the yard. Because Terry Holt's unforgiving. So he just can't go out to the yard. He's only going to get run over. Right. So I would go get him. And take him outside like like you do an old elderly person. Right. I got this old white dude. I'm sitting on the bench while he's reading the paper and I'm sitting there with him. And dude's like, yo, Drake, what you doing with dude? He's my homie. Keep going. That's cool. And so you protected him just on the strength of As long as we're from in the feds, yeah. if you're from the same state or from the same city, you're cool. You're cool. There's no what you doing with that white guy, what you doing with that black guy. Right. But it's... in the state, straight racial lines. Interesting. And so how do you work your way up? To be, you know, one of the, the younger guys that's just like running cigarettes to then really running the gang. We're going to take a break really quick because I got to tell you guys a story. A story that I've told a few times before, but it's extremely traumatic. It's when I was hit by a car. That's right. I ran a stop sign and some guy hit me and I said, hey, you know what? You can leave. Don't even worry about it. And I wish that I'd called my friends at Morgan Morgan. That's what I would have done. I would have checked them out because they might have been able to help me get some money for my injuries. Morgan Morgan is America's largest injury law firm. They have over 100 offices nationwide and more than 800 lawyers. Everything is completely free of charge unless they win your case. That's an insane value. No upfront costs, no sign-up fees. If you don't win your case, you pay $0. Morgan & Morgan will spend millions to see your case through to fight to get you the best results. Morgan & Morgan has attorneys who focus on every area of personal injury care, car accidents, Slip and fall, workplace injuries, medical malpractice, nursing home abuse. If you're ever injured, you can check out Morgan & Morgan. Their fee is free unless they win. For more information, go to forthepeople.com slash gagnon. That's right, G-A-G-N-O-N, gagnon. Or dial pound law. That's pound 529 from your cell phone. That's for the people, F-O-R, thepeople.com slash G-A-G-N-O-N or pound law, pound 529 from your cell. Go check them out. Let's get back to the show. When we first get there, I'm under dominant, like everybody else. Fast forward, like a couple months, like eight months, they came in, locked the prison down, and took everybody out, all the leaders. They came and locked all the leaders up. 
Don't know what happened. And they know who me. the leaders are. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, wow. They come in, lock them up. It's like, you know who the generals are in the army. They got the thing on their shoulder. Gotcha. And if you don't know, you know. Yeah, they yeah, came yeah. and took all the leaders out, and doors opening. It was December 5th, 1987, MCI Walpole. Locked it down, took everybody out. We come out the next day, and we come to the table, and all the leaders are gone. And since I was the closest to Dominic, I became the leader by default. Well, he the closest to Dominic. You're the boss. Wow. I'm like, okay. And so I was a boss for about two and a half weeks. I made every bad decision humanly possible. <laughs> what do you mean? What'd I you called do? work stoppages, food strikes, had people beat. I was just doing every dumb thing you could think of. You're like a bad dictator kind of thing? Horrible dictator. Oh, really? I didn't know what I was doing. So were you doing what you thought you were supposed to do? I was just making up shit. Really? At the end of the day... I think this is what you're supposed to do. think this is what you're supposed to do. They, people come to me for advice about prison shit. I got eight months in prison. The fuck right. do I know? Interesting. So I'm giving all bad advice. Then I ended up, some dudes from another town told on me about something. They got me sent to segregation. And between me making all the bad decisions and this guy's doing some stuff for some TVs, got me jammed up, they came, they were like, get him out of there. Because he's the, the systems know who's running their jails. Mm-hmm. It's not a secret. Right. And we got a bad leader, shit goes bad. And I was a horrible leader. I'm in charge of the whole prison by default. Clearly by default. Not because I earned it. You got the biggest gang. And if you're the leader of the biggest gang, you, you run it. You run the prison. So I'm making every horrible decision known to man. Yeah. And it's like, then luckily, I got caught up in some stuff and I got sent to segregation. So Dominic came back like a month later. He comes back. The first thing he says is, where's Dre? He said, oh, Dre down in solitary confinement. He said, what are they doing down there? He said, man, the dudes from that town got him jammed up. He put out an edict. Everybody from that town off the yard by 6 o'clock. He bought that entire city from the prison. Wow. He said, if anybody from that city is in this prison after 6 o'clock, stab them. Because one of the guys got me jammed. He said, done. Wow. It's and a, they all gone. They gone. They gone. 6 o'clock, gone. They wow. all protective custody. Either you're going to do one or two things. Take it to the yard, and you're going to lose. Or find a way to get locked up. Wow. He cleared the entire prison of that city for me. That's wild. And so how did you got out of solitary? Nah. That's when they shipped me to the federal government. <laughs> what is solitary like? Solitary is 24 hours a day, seven days a week in a cell with um, bars and a solid steel door and no light. No, no, They have a cell light like in the window, I mean the ceiling, but no, out, no window. You're just sitting there. There's a twin bed, a toilet, and a sink, and like a little bench that you can like Halfway by the letter on. I mean, that makes you go crazy. When I was down there, the second time I was down there for two and a half years. Two and, and a half years? Yeah. If In prison, if you commit a bad act, they'll take you before the hearings board in Massachusetts, and they'll give you anywhere from one year to 10 years in solitary. If you kill somebody, they'll give you 10. So I kill you in population. I go before the board. They'll be like, Dre, you killed him. 10 years in solitary. I might have stabbed you. Two to three years in solitary. Mm-hmm. Got caught with a knife. Six months to a year in solitary. Try to escape, six to eight years in solitary. Everything came like a like, little thing. Mm-hmm. We beat up a guard, four years in solitary. Oh, wow. It was like a standard thing. Yeah. So I tried to kill a couple of guys. They gave me two and a half years in solitary. So I'm down there. There's 15 of us on this row. Right. There's 15 cells. We're in our cells. And it's all like tough guys. There's all like solid leaders. And I'm in the cell. We're chilling. And over months without it. Days and days and weeks, 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 months. Some guys already been there ahead of me. So the guy in cell one, hypothetically, would say cell one. 
solid dude, big reputation. Everybody knows him. He's down there, big Jimmy. And then month three for me, but like month 15 for him, he starts rubbing shit on himself and screaming at the moon. Brain goes to mush. Then cell two, month 15 for him, month six for me, he starts cutting himself. Cell three, month 17, 18 for him, month nine for me, he starts setting shit on fire while he's in the room. Then you just get, you start realizing about month 16 and 19, people start going to mush. So what are you, so you're terrified? Hell yeah, I'm online. So what are you It's coming right at me. So what, what? You ever seen a scary movie when the, when the darkness comes and, you're and, it, and it comes and it's like everything's just going dark, dark and it's coming your way? Yeah. I'm like, that's just coming right for myself. At what month do I go crazy? Because I know these dudes. These are solid dudes. Yeah. And nobody's doing nothing to them. Yep. They left them to their own devices, closed the door, no sunlight, looking at a fucking brick wall all day. Yeah, it's 18 months. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, they go insane. So how do you stay sharp? I got a newspaper. Long story short, finally I said, man, I got to do something. So I started solving the problems in the newspaper to keep my mind active. Because mm. you really can't talk to nobody. You're sitting in the cell by yourself. Right. And like 15 months of sitting by yourself, not talking to nobody, I guess you start talking to yourself. Right. So I started solving the problems in the newspaper. So let's take today's news. Russia, Ukraine has a war. I said, if I'm the president of Ukraine, what do I do? From the general in Ukraine, what do I do? Mm. From a farmer in Ukraine, what do I do? From the neighboring state of Poland, what do I do? If I'm this person, what do I do? If I'm a citizen in America, what do I do? If I'm the Russian, what do I do? If I'm the this, I would solve the problem from like 20 different vantage points. Interesting. And it keep me up, it takes like three days per problem. Then the next one is a housing crisis. Oh, there's a homeless crisis in downtown city X. Right. So if I'm the mayor, what do I do? If I'm the police chief, if I'm the local CEO of a hospital, if I'm the CEO of a business, if I'm a nonprofit, if I'm an NGO, wow. if it's I'm the mother of one of these people down there. I mean, I started thinking, if I'm the homeless person, I mean, if I'm the this person, I started solving the problems from 20 different vantage points. And you're doing this intentionally knowing, oh, if I don't do this, my brain is going to fall apart. I'm seeing it. I see what people are doing. Wow. They ain't doing nothing. They hollering at the moon. That requires a lot of foresight. And like, no, nah, there was no foresight. I'm seeing motherfuckers go crazy. But that's, I think that's what makes you special is that you... Like you always are observing what people are doing around you and you're learning lessons from them. I had no choice. As, as best a, you can. As a kid, I couldn't read or write. Right. I learned by listening and watching. So you see these people go crazy. I'm go, seeing good people. I'm not going to go crazy. That I yeah. know, yeah. know of, go crazy. Yeah. I'm like, why is he on meds? Right. They're coming down, yo, 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 Jimmy, med time. Jimmy on meds? He's the most Jimmy. solid dude in the solid whole block. Solid dude I know. Wow. And everybody in this block is called 10 Block. It's the 60 worst people or the most violent people in the state. Mm. So these are the 60 toughest guys in the state. These ain't just oh, regular guys that just got off the bus. Yeah. These are guys who try to kill people in jail, choked out a guard in jail, try to jump over the wall, handle their business. These is real people, mm -hmm. as we call upstanding citizens in the prison system. Hilarious. And they're <laughs> going fucking crazy. Now, can you tell me why you try to mess up those dudes that sent you to solitary? Like, what, what happened? Like, what did they do that made you want to go for them? No, I mean, there's rules in prison. Okay. And I, as, as much as people get on these things and they talk talk about prison, I'll do a thousand prison stories. But what I don't do is glamorize prison. Mm -hmm. And I don't talk, because for me to tell you the story about the people that I hurt, I got to tell you about the people that I hurt. Mm. And so I'm thinking if I'm that guy, 
And I'm sitting home watching this podcast. Right. This guy's on here talking about what he did to me. How does that make me feel? Bad. You know what I'm saying? What kind of trauma am I inflicting on him? Uh, you know what I'm saying? So I'll say I went to SEG for hurting people, but I won't tell the story mm. of what I did to the people. You know what I'm saying? That makes sense. Or the just, I mean, yeah, you got to, I jumped over the thing, I did this, it is, all that. It's, it sounds good. Right. It's a hella clip. It'll go viral. Right. But it's going to, if that person sees it, even though we ain't friends, I'm, he's still a human. Mm. And if I say I'm about helping people, then is this helping somebody, entertaining somebody at, at his expense or at their expense? There's a bunch of them. Right. <laughs> so I don't tell the stories of hurting people. Respect. I tell the story of when Dominic checked me or they were going to do, my homies would put me online or a stuff that happened. Like we had a dude, which shit happened. But as far as my victims from in prison for being hurt, nah, well, I you, used to. Mm. When I, when in my early days of speaking, I would talk about it because I was insensitive to them. Mm. I'm saying, so but then you I, learned over time. Like I don't yeah, want to. I don't want to make them relive that pain. Yeah, I was like, if, even if you read my book, mm-hmm. I mean, people who know me, they know I've, I've been charged eight times with attempted murder in prison. Mm-hmm. I've been shipped to nine states. I've been riots on airplanes. I've done a lot of shit in prison. I got caught eight times. <laughs> I ain't gonna say how many I did. Right. I got caught. Eight. But the baseline is, you read my book. There's no blood. Hmm. Nobody bleeds in my book. Right. Nobody gets shot in my book. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets choked in my book. My book is about a story about my transformation through life. Mm-hmm. It's not about carnage. Right. I'm saying it's not about I'm saying clickbait. Right. So you can read you can give my book to an eight year old, they can read it and walk away untraumatized. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm saying I read some books, man, it's all about hustling and slick this and pimping that and shooting this and I smacked this one and I chopped that one and literally. You read my you give my book to an eight year old. Mm-hmm. And they'll walk away with lessons and no trauma. And you think that causes more harm when people glamorize prison or where they glamorize the system or they talk about the, the things that they did? Do you think it, some people think that's cool and like kind of fall into that? The, my son, mm-hmm. wonderful kid, he'll listen to a rap song when they're talking about blowing up the city or burning down a block or pimping holes or shooting people or slinging dropes, drugs. To him, it's entertainment. Right. Because he has a dad and a mom. Right. But to the kid without a dab in the arm, that's real life. Mm. That's wow. I want to be that. So for some people who listen to this, they'll say, oh, that's just a story that something Andre went through. Or they'll say, I can do that too. So I, I make it a point. I tell people, I train people to be speakers. Mm-hmm. You can't go to a school full of middle schools and high schools and tell them that you was the most biggest drug dealer in your neighborhood, the toughest guy in the prison, knocked people out, and you finally woke up, found Jesus, and got your life together. They're not hearing the Jesus part. Right. They're hearing that you was a drug dealer with the cars and the fame. You was a gangster with the with the life and the money. They're hearing that part. Right. So you're responsible for what you say and the interpretation thereof. Mm. So yeah. if I give you something that you can reinterpret as this is cool, that's on me. I always thought like it was a little unfair the way because like obviously I grew up in like a white suburb and I really <laughs> what gave it away the white people part. <laughs> yeah. but why like, did you grow up in the Spanish suburb yeah I'm they wouldn't sorry. let you in nah they wouldn't let me in I, I have no rhythm um, we established that yeah exactly that's a part of the the I guess the initiation process but no I I obviously all my friends love rap music and I thought that there was a little bit of a glamorization of like the drill rap that you're talking about right. And it, to me, it kind of felt like uh, the way people used to look at like cowboys, where it's like they got to watch these guys like rob banks and do crime 
and they were able to distance themselves and it was just like a story it was like right. these uh, action heroes that they were distanced from but then i was like you know these are real people like it dawned on me much later i was like oh no these are real people just like you said in a real situation living this every day like this is a real kid that's rapping about this about his friends and his homies that aren't here anymore exactly partially due to you know the culture that was bred through some of those specific songs and things like that it's not the music music a reflection of the lives that they live mm. or, or they want to live it's the lack of education it's if you go and you educate these kids mm -hmm. and education includes love right you're know saying if you can do that then it's just music and entertainment right if you don't do that it becomes a guidepost for life right my son will never think i'm gonna go buy ak go on a block and post up and smoke cigarettes and the rest of that shit right you know why he has to look at me <laughs> And talk to me. Yeah. And there's nothing in my continence, there's nothing in my conversation, there's nothing in his mother's discussion that lends him believe that that's a real scenario. Right. Yeah, same with me. That was like my upbringing. Like I never thought that that was an option. Right. No, nah, he doesn't. He'll make the, My son actually makes beats, but he does not believe that that's a lifestyle. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. Okay, so I'm curious. Uh, I want to know about the redemption part. Like that, the epiphany that you had that sort of was like, all right, I'm going to turn this around. Um, but before, can you tell me the the head nod story again? Oh, <laughs> we called you. You gave it a new name. It's called "I Was Hungry" story. Oh, that was hungry story. Excuse me. I grew up in the system. After a year, in, I was down in South Trek for like six months, and causing all kinds of havoc. So they sent me to the federal government. The state called the federal government and said we can't house him anymore. He's too violent, too incorrigible, and he's going to be a real leader soon. So we want to send him out to you so y'all can kill him or knock him off. <laughs> Before he gets his full potential. Right. Because you could look at me when I was like first coming in and say, well, they listened to him. I don't know why or how come, but they listened to him. When I first came in the system, people listened to me. I wasn't in charge, but people listened to me. And even when Dominic went away, everybody gravitated to me. Like we, they anointed me the next leader, even though I had no training. It's just natural leadership. It was just, I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. They just said, we're listening to him. So I go through, I get sent to the feds. I do two and a half years in the fed system. Crazy as I want to be. I come back. Two riots on airplanes, did all the madness. I make back to mass. I'm back in mass. Now, going to the federal government back in the days was huge because they used to send us out there to get raped, murdered, or killed. That was the reason they take you from Massachusetts, put you in the feds, where you're like one of 400,000. You go to a prison, there's 2,000 people. There's one guy from Massachusetts, you. Mm -hmm. That usually doesn't work out too well mm. because the numbers, the gangs, the culture, and if you make one mistake, you got problems. You know what I'm saying? So most people go out there and they start off all right, and they make a mistake and they get swallowed up. So when I went out there, I remember my lesson from taking me to the yard with Dominic. Where they were like, yo, they had me terrified to make a mistake. So I am so uber conscious about not making mistakes. I'm moving through the federal system. I make it through two and a half years. They kicked me out. I was so out of control. They kicked me out. They called Massachusetts and they sent me back. So when I come back, my name is like, they used to sit around the prison yard and tell stories. Yo, man, Dre was in prison X and this, this, this happened. The stories of my stuff would make it back to Massachusetts. And they would sit around the yard and be like, yo, man, Dre putting in work. So when I actually came back, it was like LeBron James going back to <laughs> Cleveland. It was like, he's back. I'm he's coming home. Here. I'm home. Yeah. And it's like you put Le LeBron James on the high school team. It's not fair. Right. I just spent two and a half years in the worst system, the biggest system in the world. It is easy now. And I conquered. Now you put me back in high school, running them up. Wow. So I'm in my cell. I got up. I, I am 
def- I am the in charge and I should be now. Right. And I know what I'm doing. Right. So I'm in my cell. I got the gang. I'm chilling. I wake up one day. I'm hungry. Like I pulled up the house. I'm hungry. Let's get something to eat. So I came out of my cell. I walked downstairs. I walk up to the gate where the CL's at. Give him a head nod. He opens the gate. He know who I am. Walk out in the hallway. I walk down the hallway. Get right up the hallway. There's another gate where the sergeant sits. Give him a head nod. I walk by him. He get down to another gate. Give him that nod. He let me walk up. He gets a center control where there's this big encased steel and plastic and plexiglass where they control the whole prison. And across from it is a gate that goes to the kitchen. I grab the gate, get a gate, a head nod. He opened the gate. I walk down the hallway. It's like this long corridor to get to the kitchen door. I bang on the kitchen door. The guy slides a little slot back. CO sees it's me. He opens the door. I walk in. I'm like, yo, dude's on the grill. I'm like, yo, Jim, man, um, make me a hamburger. Make me some fries. Like, all right, Dre. They hop to it. I'm chilling. I'm just waiting, right? And then this guy comes walking out from the back. He walks up. He's like, hey, what are you doing in my kitchen? You're not dressed right. Because they all have to wear white. I got a regular clothes. What are you doing in my kitchen? You're not dressed right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's yelling at me. He's like yelling at me. I'm like, dude, check this out. First, all the yelling's not necessary. So let's just stop yelling and talk like men. And second, you can't even back that yelling up. So he comes and I said, yo, who are you? This is who I asked my time. Who are you? I'm the food service administrator. I'm in charge of this. I ran this restaurant, that restaurant. I'm in charge of this whole kitchen. Ah. He said, well, who are you? There was a song out by Warren G called A Regulator. So I'm the regulator. He says, well, what do you regulate? I said, if you go home or not. And it hit. I said, dude, you're talking tough. You're yelling at me for no reason. You ain't tough. It don't make sense. It's not necessary. I said, man, I just came down to get something to eat. And you're doing all this woofing about nothing. And he's, and he's looking and he's still starting. I said, dude, yeah. I said, listen, I could kill you. And if I killed you, right, you'd be dead. Your wife would miss you. Your kids would miss you. I don't have a wife and kids. It's just me. I said, now, if I kill you right now, you're going to go home dead. I'm going to solitary confinement. I'll be back in about seven years. When I get back in seven years, you'll still be dead. This kitchen will still be here. I walk through them, save five locked doors. I just walked through to get here just now. And everybody in this kitchen is doing exactly what I told them to do, except you. And I'm going to get a hamburger. So my question is this. It's not, am I going to get a hamburger? Is this what I get it today? Or do I get it in seven years? That's your call. He's looking at me. Because <laughs> I talk calm. He's looking at me. He has the, on his hip, he has a radio. He, can, he got the little orange button on. He can smash the orange button and all the troops will come running. And he's looking at the radio and he's looking at me. You can smash the button. They're going to take me. I'll be in hope for about a week, <laughs> if that, for coming down here talking shit to you. He walked over to the grill. He said, yo. Dude said, what's up? He said, make them two. <laughs> <laughs> then he went to the office and he called his wife, sweating bullets. Wow. And how long were you were you living like that for? Where like you were just running the prison? For a while. Yeah. It was my turn. Yeah. And at that point, were you... No, I ran the prison until I went back to solitary confinement. Oh, and you went back I picked again. up two more attempted murder cases and I went back to solitary. Mm. So I was running that prison f- until I went back to solitary. I hadn't learned... To send people versus me go. I like going. Right. I'm saying a lot of people would send people to go do the I enjoyed going. Because I grew up and initially I was a guy that got sent. 
Right. So I got used to You're being used sent. To so even when I became boss, I still wanted to go. I thought I had to prove something mm. by going. I had to be on the front line. And real leaders stay in the back and let the soldiers do the front line work. Right. But I hadn't learned that lesson yet. Right. So I'm back in solitary confinement. I got another 10 years added in my sentence. And I'm sitting down there thinking that I'm winning. I'm the king of the jail. I'm running shit. Yeah. My mom came to see me and she said, how did you get in jail, in jail? I said, mom, I'm working hard. This shit is not easy. <laughs> and she started talking to me about the trumpet and about some other stuff. I'm like, mom, your husband was in jail. My father was in jail. I'm running this thing. You should be proud of me. Mm. She just walked out crying. I'm like, she's soft. And it was a couple years later when I realized that I was the king of nowhere. That I had done all this stuff, created all this stuff to be nothing. And I had a guy ask me one time, he said, yo, Dre, you the boss, right? He said, yeah, can I talk to you for real, for real? He said, if you the boss, walk out. He said, all these COs you talk shit about, all this staff that you be clowning and punking and chumping, they go home every night. You lock in your cell. If you the boss, walk out. Hmm. He said, and that's why I realized I was a king of nowhere. So I came up with a plan and said, I don't want to be in jail no more. I don't want, because it didn't make sense. It made sense to me up until that moment. I said, I want to go home. I want to be successful, and I want to never come back here. I said, I'm going to go home, go to Harvard, be successful, call it a day. I went to my friends. I said, yo, I'm going home. I figured it out. Go home, go to Harvard, be successful. They looked at me like I was crazy. They were like, yeah. I'm like, yo, we can do this. What they really said to me is, y'all, bro, we can only go to the creek. Man, listen, man, we can only go to the creek, man. We go past the creek, man, we in trouble. We can go to the creek and we can come back here. I mean, they can go over to the hood, get in trouble, come back to jail. Mm -hmm. They can't. What I'm talking about is past the creek. Yeah, never coming back. Uh-uh. You were talking about never coming back? Man, Miss Charlie ain't going to like that. You can't talk about never coming back. You can run to the creek. You can even go a little bit up the hill. But your ass better come back here. Miss Charlie going to find out you're going to be in trouble. Wait, Miss who? Slaves. Uh, Slaves would want to run away. Mm -hmm. But they said, we can't go past the creek. Because if we go past the creek, we in trouble. He told us, can't, we can go to the creek, swim a little bit, but can't go past the creek. Mm. I can kind of get away with going up the hill a little bit. But I can't never leave. I can't leave the plantation never come back. Mm. And that's the mindset my friends had. They would... If I came out to my cell and said, yo, man, I got beef with this dude. Let's go kill him. They would go with me. And they would help me kill somebody. Yo, I got beef with this CEO. Let's go fuck him up. They would come with me and fuck you up. Yo, I, I want to get some drugs in. We're going to flood this whole place with heroin. They would get down with me and flood the place with heroin. I said, let's go home and never come back. They said, no. They couldn't wrap that their mind around that. Right. Go home and never come back? Nah, I don't know what that looks like. How did you change your mind? How did you switch your mindset? My goal was to be the number one guy in the prison system. Right. When I had the chance to become that and my clarity came and I saw it was a bunch of nothing, I didn't want to be in prison no more. So I sat down and said, well, what do I want to be if I don't want to be this? And I said, I don't want to come back. At first I said, I want to be free. And I realized free is just a parking lot. A lot of people get to the parking lot and they're technically free. Right. And they have no plan beyond the parking lot, so they end up coming back. So I said, I don't want to go to the parking lot and come back. I want to really go, go. So I said, college. I go home and go to college. I won't come back here. I picked Harvard because it's the only school I knew the name of. And I just said, I'm going to do this. It's the only school you knew the name of? I'm from of? Boston. I used to ride my skateboard there. Wow. So I, I'm from Boston. Never been to a college in my life. Don't know nothing about college. Only school I knew the name of. Harvard has a train station named after it. 
is Harvard train station. So I used to go to Central Square and Harvard Square on the train. It's on the red line in Boston. So if you've ever rode in a train in Boston, there's a stop called Harvard. Right. <laughs> and you, you know, know it's a college. Did you know it was like one of the most prestigious universities no. in the world? Wow. I dropped out of high school. <laughs> I didn't know about prestigious universities. Right. The closest I came to universities was in the 11th grade, while I was failing everything, I won an exchange student scholarship. I went to Europe for the summer, and I came back. I met all these super rich white kids from all over the country. And I went to go visit the ones in New York, and they were talking about going to college, and they went on their fathers, was taking them on college tours. And I saw it, but it didn't make sense to me. Mm. I didn't really understand what they were doing. So when I picked this school, it was just simply based on I knew the name right. and where it was. So I didn't understand it was any different than a local community college. Wow. So I, now that's your goal. That's the target. Goal. And I got a thing with a challenge. Yeah. If you challenge me, I win. Mm. If you challenge me, I win. I'll wait you out. I will beat you down. I will. It's not the one who inflicts the most pain. It's who endures the most pain that wins. Shout out to Jihad Lloyd Wright, who's passed. He said, Dre is never the one who inflicts the most pain. It's the one who can take the most pain. Mm. So I've learned to take the most pain. And I can take a beating. I can take a no. I can take a denial. I can take rain. I can take sleet. I can take snow. I can take misery. I can take loneliness. I won't lose because I don't quit anymore. You used to. I used to. Once I learned my biggest thing wasn't depression, wasn't a crazy family. My father taught me that quitting was okay. Yep. And once I fixed that quitting gene, I don't I don't quit anymore. So I can if it's it took me twenty five years to actually get to Harvard. I never blinked. I never once said I'm not going. Really? It never wavered in your mind. Never once. Wow. Okay, so you're you have this sort of like mindset change that just happened, I guess naturally seeing what the eventual road yeah. you know, of your actions would lead to and you were like, I don't want this anymore. But you still have all these years and these charges racked up and the whole deal. So first, so how do you get out? I looked in the mirror. I said, what's inside of me that's stopping this from happening? I'm black. I'm a gang member. I'm violent. I got 105 years. You know what I'm saying? I just picked up two attempted murder charges. You know what I'm saying? I got anger issues. I got a family that doesn't support me. I got, I'm got. i a high school dropout. I made my list. And I started working on it. Mm. Went back to school, got my GED. Went to anger management classes. Went to the law library, taught myself the law and became a lawyer. I started going to self-help groups. I started going to college. I started behaving myself instead of hurting myself. I started mediating beefs instead of starting beefs. And I got put myself on that pathway. All in prison. That, in prison. And my best friend, who I met on an exchange student program, she's my best friend to this day. She she When she picked her college, she was from Miami, she picked Brown University, which was like 10 minutes down the street from my prison, so she can come see me. And she would come see me like once or twice a week. We're sitting in the Vibram one day, and she said, we dumb conversations. And conversations come up by hitting a girl. I said, if you hit me, I'm hitting you back. <laughs> she said, what if it's a girl? I said, if you hit me, I'm hitting you back. That's what my mother taught me. Mm. She said, you can't hit a girl. She's not as strong as you. I said, listen, if she's dumb enough to hit me, I'm hitting her back. If she thinks she's tough enough to hit me, and we went back and forth, we agreed to disagree. And she went home to Brown University. I went back to myself. I said, Dre, you want her life. You want to be where she's at. You want to be hanging out with her. She just come back from Tahiti. I don't know what the hell that is, but she went. And she's living her life, traveling the world, even though she had rich parents, but she's living her life. I said, dude, your life sucks. You don't like it, but you're doubling down on your mindset. 
instead of opening yourself up to what she's saying, maybe if you think like her, you might get what she got. Uh, I'm like holding to the thing that hasn't worked for me. Right. And she's living her life, the life that I want to live, but I'm trying to live her life with my thinking. But it's scary because I guess if you are, someone imprints on you a way to live and a rule book and a recipe for life, and it's not getting you the results you want, but it's the only thing you know, it's scary to let go of that and it take wasn't on something scary. else. I, you just need, she loved me. We've been best friends. We've been cool. It's nothing but all, it's all good. You can trust her. Yeah. It's just that I had to sit and say, here's my thinking, and this is what it got me. This is her thinking. This is what it got her. Which one do I want? Yep. And I'm like, willing to make the change. The hardest part about change is changing. That's the hardest part about changing, actually making the change. Yeah. Rationalizing it, thinking it through, making it make sense is easy. Mm-hmm. Making the change is the hard part. So what does everyone in your gang think when you're like, all right, I'm going to learn law. I'm going to go to these classes and everything like that. I'm changing up. They didn't go. I went by myself. But if you're leading the gang, what do they think is going on? Well, what happened is I passed my responsibilities off to my number two. And I kind of like stepped aside and I told him, I'm going to help you, support you, advise you, whatever you need. I'm your guy. I'm going to make sure that you win. And I started going to do my thing. And the, the six years that I put in, I put in a lot of work, as they say. I went through a lot of stuff and I never blinked, never backed down, went through stuff most guys had never been through in our state. Mm-hmm. Surviving two and a half years in solitary, two years in the feds, and all that. surviving the stuff I survived wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. And then leading the way I led, was 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 noticeable. So I'm going to school every day, programs every day. People think I went crazy. Ah, because they didn't know what happened. The word was Dre snapped. Dre crazy. Dre probably on meds. He the time got to him. The time got to Dre. He just he just he just snapped. The same way I watched some same solid guys go crazy in solitary and I didn't think bad of them. I felt bad for him. People thought the same thing about me. Dre snapped. He thinks going to programs gonna change his life. Like these guys Rubbing shit on himself, thinking he's going to do something. Or he thinks going to program will change his life. He can Drayden went crazy. Uh, and one day I was going to, I was coming back from program or going, and guys, they were all outside. I'm walking by the home. He's like, yo, yo, Dre, what's up? So I'm going to program. For what, man? I said, man, I'm trying to work on some stuff. They said, dude, you're the smartest dude in prison. You are literally the smartest dude here. Why are you going to programs? I said, man, me and my dad don't get along, man, and stuff. Mess my head up. I got to go work on that. Dude said, nah, why are you really going? Now he's challenging me. Yeah. I said, man, dude, I'm telling you, man, I'm just trying to go work on my stuff. They said, nah, nah, what's really going up in that program building? He's, I'm like, right. I said, let me explain something to you. I'm going to programs. I'm going to counseling. And there's one or two things I'm going to talk about. I'm going to let you choose. I can either go to counseling and talk about me and my dad not getting along, him not being there and how it hurt my feelings and it's affected my life. I can go back to the unit, get my knife, come back and stab you in the face and talk to the counselor about some idiot trying to get in my way of talking about my dad. You make the call, but I'm going. He said, man, Dre, that's fucked up what your father did to you, man. You need to go fix that. <laughs> I said, you sure? I said, man, I'm like, all right, cool. And I kept going to counseling. I would die for mine. See, going to counseling don't make me weak. Yeah. It don't make me soft. don't make me not Dre. You mm-hmm. said. If I got to kill you to go to counseling, then fuck it. I'm going to kill you and go to counseling. They got counseling in solitary. Right. You ain't going to dictate my life. You ain't going to dictate my life, homie. You ain't going to tell me shit. I've been running this shit my whole way. How the fuck you going to tell me anything about how I'm going to live? 
I'm saying? And it's the same thing when I got a mentor. I got an Orthodox Jewish rabbi as a mentor. And my mentor, Natan, he taught me how to be accountable, be responsible, to be given, to be a servant, to be human. Nobody ever taught me to be human. What do you mean by that? I taught shoot him, stab him, kill him, who gives a fuck about him, keep going. That's what they taught me since birth. It's all about survival. It's never about collection. It's not about us making it. It's about you making it. So Natan taught me it was about people. It's about helping. It's about servanthood. It's about the greater mission. It's about being a better person and all this other stuff. And I, I liked it. And nobody ever taught me this before. Fast forward, I ended up joining the church. You know what I'm saying? I went to parole. I got parole. April of 99. Three months later, I went to a program. And I got, I got saved, as they say. And the first thing God told me is I gave you parole. He said, had you asked me, had anybody said to me, Dre, go in there and pray to God and he'll give you parole. I guarantee it. I just said, no, I walked in here. I'm walking out of here. Mm -hmm. I ain't asked somebody to get in here. I'm not asking somebody to get out of here. So I went in to parole and I got it. Three months later, I go to the church. I joined the church. And the first thing God said to me was, I gave you parole, but you was too damn stubborn to take it the other way. <laughs> so long story short, I'm in the church now. And all these dudes who I didn't deal with before are now in my circle. I'm in the church circle. And I'm hanging out with the rabbi every Wednesday. So one of the dudes was like, yo, man, you can't hang out with the rabbi. I said, why? They said, he's going to hell. I said, why is he going to hell? Oh, he won't confess Jesus is his Lord and Savior, so he's going to hell. And you can't be around people who ain't like us. I was like, huh? They're like, yeah, yeah, you don't know nothing about this. I know you knew in Christ, man. You just a babe and you still drinking milk, man, all this other. I'm like, huh? The church talk. I said, listen, man, let me explain something to you. That man you're talking about, when you wouldn't come up a thousand feet near me, he sat with me every Wednesday. When you wouldn't say boo to me, that man taught me lessons on how to be a person. And now you're telling me he's going to hell? Well, I'm, telling you, I'm not going to argue that part because it might be true. Wherever he go for eternity, I'd love to go sit next to him. I'd be honored to sit next to him. And as far as your ass go, you want to see Jesus? I can get you there today. <laughs> I know people around here. You want to go see Jesus, motherfucker? Nah, nah, Dre, nah. All right, then don't ever think that your bitch ass can pick my friends. Bro. See, what happens is people get in these different lanes and roles, and they want to control and leverage. Man, listen, man, I don't care you the CEO of a company. You're a grown man. I don't care if you're in the church. You're a grown man. I don't care if you're the dude at, 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 at restaurants serving tables. You're still a grown man. Everybody grown. You talk to people like they people. Mm-hmm. You don't talk to people based on their positions. Mm. And that's how I feel. I'm saying so I've always been I one of cheat code for prison. Okay. Cheat code for prison. One of the things that kept me alive for 14 years and out of a lot of bullshit is I was kind to everybody. I was never disrespectful. I remember I was walking through the hallways one time and a homie was bigger than me, was older than me, was more senior. And dude tried to say something, get the fuck out of here. They screamed on the dude for nothing. And I was like, whoa. He was just like, we're the, we're the team, fuck everybody. That was the attitude. <laughs> like the Detroit bad boys. We're the team, fuck everybody. It's us against the world. That was his attitude. That was never my attitude. So I was like, I say hi to people. How you doing? What's up? All that. And when I became boss, I always kept that attitude. All the little nobody dudes, the little scrub dude, the little bitch ass dudes, they would hear everything. And because I was kind to them, not a bully and an asshole, they would tell me everything. Yo, Dre, man, you know dudes plotting, you know, you know dudes, blah, blah, blah. They stayed 
dropping stuff in my head mm. about what's going on around the jail. Mm. But if I was an asshole, they'd be waiting for me to fall. Right. <laughs> they'd be cheering for me to fall. Like, yo, I hope they get them. They're plotting on them. Yes, let's go watch. But you weren't even doing that on purpose. You just wanted I, to be kind. I used to be a little dude. I, I was five when I started high school. I hate bullies. Yeah. I was 5'1". I was like 4'11", 4'10", all through middle school. I hate bullies. Mm. I was looked over, looked past, disregarded most of my life. I hate bullies. So I don't know how to be mean to somebody. Right. It ain't in me. Right. Now, can I fuck you up? Yeah, if there's a reason. But I never just did it for fun. It's always justified. It was always it was a reason. Yeah. You know I'm saying it was combat because it had to be combat, not just because I was bored. Right. It was, you're never a bully. Never bully. Never bully. Can't right. find nobody on the planet that I bullied them. Right. So now, what happens on November 19, 1999? November 19th, November 15th. Trying to give me four extra days, motherfucker. <laughs> you working for the man? See, that's what happened with these white people. I, bro, trying I, to give me four I, extra days. <laughs> You work, you see? I think it was November 25th, actually. Nah, man. you try to give me 10 extra days. How you fucking with you, man? That's your comedy? That's bad comedy. Boo! Boo! I'm not going to disagree with you because you are, you're scaring me. Yeah, bro. yeah, you be scared, motherfucker. You try to give me four more days. No, no, no. November 9th, all right? I'll get you back. No, you're, you're leaving give, earlier. Give me mine. Give me yeah, mine. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Know something? November 15th is my day mm -hmm. because it's my day. I went to the parole board in April of 1999 and I got parole. I was supposed to go home in May. I didn't go home. My guy, Gordon Haas, prayed for me to be there to go to that program to get saved. And I was. And then they held me for another six months after that. Five months. I was supposed to go home in May, but I didn't go home until November because the system refused to release me. Me and the COs, me and the directors, we was all beefing. We ain't letting him out. He's a criminal. He's bad. He's bad for society. He tricked the pro board. We went around in circles. But in the end, they finally, instead of letting me go in May, they let me go in November. Had I gone home in May, it would have been a month before the summertime. 14 years being locked up. I'm due a summer. Boy, I'm about to shine. I'm about to get me a drop top, some jewels, and be out in the park. I'm about to go shine. And I just spent May, June, July, August, flossing and flexing. Now, September, I'm going to go to school. I got out in November. It's cold as shit. I hate the cold. Mm -hmm. It's holidays, so you're in the house, ain't nobody around. And came right out of the holidays. I was in college in January. Wow. Timing's everything. Right. So it's, it goes back to my lawyer. That's happening. Had a few he not times. crossed me, I wouldn't have went to jail. I won't wish this on nobody, but it, timing matters. Had I came home in May, like I was supposed to, I'd have been in the streets hard for four months. Mm. But because I came home in November, I was with my family. I was locked indoors because it was cold outside. Yeah. And it gave me, I volunteered at the juvenile center every day. Uh, so you immediately start giving back. 90 minutes. But had I had it been summertime, I don't know if I'd have won every day. What do you mean 90 minutes? Prison, parole office, youth center. 90 minutes after I walked out of prison, I was in a youth center talking to kids. Wow. And what do you, what's motivating you to go to a youth center? We used to bring the kids up to the prison and talk to them from the youth center. So when they found out I was going home, they asked me to come by the youth center and talk to them. Mm -hmm. So I gave them my word. I'd come by. So when I came out, they said, yo, Dre, where you want to go? I said, take them to the youth center. I kept my word. And what, what do you tell the kids the, the first you know, 90 minutes that you're out of prison? The first 90, I, I just told them, man, listen, they knew me from being at the, at the prison. There were some kids who didn't know me. I told my story growing up and what I did and how I want to do, and I made it home doing great. They clapped. They said, Dre, will you come back tomorrow? 
came back the next day. I couldn't tell her my life story. I already told him that. So I told him another story. They clapped. He said, Dre, will you come back tomorrow? I went there for like 30, 40 days in a row. Know what they made me do? Become a master storyteller. Prior to that, I told one story. Mm. Going to that youth center for like 45 days in a row. Got to have new material. I became a master storyteller. Wow. These kids were like really hungry for lessons and for entertainment and engagement. You try to tell and a kid the same story twice. You I heard it. Can't. Oh, yeah. yeah. These kids are harsh. <laughs> so it made me become a master storyteller. I'm telling stories about hygiene, about finance, about thinking, about this. I'm just, I became a master. I had to stand there for like two hours with 35 kids who were like 14, 15 in lockup mm-hmm. and keep them engaged. And after about 45 days, I was a master storyteller. Didn't even know it. Wow. It's just repetition. Repetition. Now, I had to come up with new stuff every day. When did you see your mom for the first time after you got out? Uh, it was probably three days. Wow. Did, and she knew you were out? I don't know if I caught it. Probably. I got out. I went. I would stay at a group home because I didn't want to go to her house. Oh, why not? Um, love my mother. Me and my mother in the house together for 18 years equaled me going to prison. Mm. Not her fault. Not my fault. But I'm going to do the math. Andre and mom, same house for 18 years equaled Andre in prison. If you two are the same people, there's going to be conflicts. Like no, that's not. I had no conflict with my mom. Oh, really? Me and mom had no conflict. But me and mom in the same house for 18 years didn't stop me from going to prison. Mm. However you want to look at it. So why am I going to do the same dynamic again? Mm-hmm. Let me go someplace with some people who are professionals at keeping people out of prison. Mm. My mother will love me back to prison. Mm. Most people's mothers love them back to prison mm. or back to drugs. It's called enabling. My mother's an enabler. She's going to help her child the way she thinks is best, which technically isn't a professional way of helping me. I need a professional help. Yeah. So I went to a professional program. And I just stayed focused and um, leveled up every day. Went to that center. And it gave it, the cool thing about going to the center, I came home, cheat code on staying free. <laughs> when you do a lot of time in jail, you come out, the world's moving 100 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And you're moving at minus two. So everything's moving too fast. You can't keep up. And you just, the, um, the ATM's talking to you. The bus is talking to you. Cars are parking themselves now. Yeah. People walk around with pieces in you. Like, you think they're on another planet. Different world. You know what I'm saying? Electric, electric cars, no gas. They're like, what's going on? White yeah. people jogging through the hood, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so I'm like, man, you know where I found my peace? At the youth center. Mm. I went to the youth center. Know what it was? It was a locked building. I walked into a locked building. Guess what I was comfortable in? Locked buildings. Right. There was no phones. There was no moving cars. There was no talking ATMs, no talking buses, none of that. It was a locked building building. I knew what to expect. I understood the vibe. I understood the energy. So for those three hours I was volunteering at the center, I could center myself and calm myself. Mm. To go back out for another 22 hours of fast-paced madness. And I'd come back to the center for two, three hours and calm myself. Because I was safe right inside that building. Mm. That's so interesting. You spend so much time incarcerated that your brain, I guess, kind of adapts to being more comfortable. No, in. It's not so much adapts. I take you from no exposure, right? And I throw you out into the world. It's too much stimulus. It's too much stimulation. Yeah. Where do you go to find peace? Mm. So for me, the juvenile center was my peace. And probably like five or six times, I literally got in my car about ten o'clock at night, and I drove out to the max. It was probably like forty-five minutes outside of the city, MCI Walpole, and I sit up on the highway, and I look over the wall into the prison at the housing units. And I had to sit in the car and I looked because all my friends were in there. 
And I would sit on the highway outside of the prison for like an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Mm. And just like, not talk to my friends, but like, just look at the prison. Yeah. And I would turn around and drive back to the house. That was your whole world, really. I, I've done that like four or five times. I just drive out there 10, 11 o'clock at night and sit, out, sit outside the prison. Wow. Up, it was like the highway that went by the prison, but you could see from the highway over the wall. Wow. And I'd drive out there and just sit. It was like, man, that was my connection to my guys. Wow. And then how quickly thereafter do you start Academy of Hope? Like, what's the journey there? I started youth centers. Then I got a name around the city for being a really good speaker, and mm-hmm. kids listen to me. And then a guy hired me in the neighborhood to work with him, and I learned how to do a lot of stuff there, write grants, do trainings, do accounting, mm. um, program design. We did $25 million in nonprofit grants. Um, we helped create the Office of Faith-Based Community Initiative that George W. signed in the law. Um, we created programs for Canada, um, for Brazil, for like London, and like seven other countries. Um, we're working at Harvard Law School. I'm speaking on campus. I'm not working there, but I'm speaking on campus. I'm engaging at the university. And we're just light, we're on light speed. I'm creating programs for other gang members and for gang kids. And we're just on light speed for four and a half years. Never stopping. Never, from day one, I didn't stop. Right. This is the thing. When I came home and I went to this guy and he gave me a job, he says, what do you want? I said, I want a house. I want a car. I want to be able to hire my friends. We'll actually get the job done. So he got me this big house. at this big colonial house in Boston. It was like five bedrooms, three floors, and a basement. I'd go to work from like 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock. I'd come home. My house is empty. Nice house, but it's empty. Hated being alone. So mm. I go back outside. Work till like 10 o'clock. Come back home. Guess what? House still empty. Go back outside. Come home at 2 o'clock in the morning and pass out. I get up at 8, go back to work. I did it every day for four and a half years. Wow. So I hated being in the house by myself. You got a lot of stuff done. When you're yeah. constantly People outside. thought, this dude just doesn't want to stop. <laughs> I would go home, and it's the worst feeling in the world. Yeah. And I still do. I still do, deal with that to this day. Really? I live by myself for the most part. Were there, so, any, were there any habits that you built or formed in prison that you still do now similar to that? Like things that you just do on a regular basis, even just like small things in your home that uh, you're like... I mean, I could sit in a cell forever and not be blinked. So... I sit in the airport, see people crying and complaining. I'm like, dude, I just sit in two by four foot cell. <laughs> I got TVs, radios, iPhones, cable, lounges, my coffee machines, restaurants. Right. Man, what y'all talking about? There's a problem. Mm. So you're, you're patient. You can just, you can it's chill. It's not even patient. I'm good. Yeah. I used to do this with nothing. Right. You know what I'm saying? Put now, a phone in front of me. I'm, I'm chilling. I got a TV in front of me on the plane. Mm. My bed lays down. My cheek lays to a bed. They're bringing me meals. I'm like, what are y'all complaining about? Right. I can sit on this plane for 20 hours. Wow. But um, for me, patience and never forgetting what it's felt like to just be invisible. And I want to help other people be not invisible. Mm-hmm. So I was literally just in um, Curacao. I'm in Curacao for a week. I gave my speech. I went down and gave a speech with some people from Holland. I got on stage. I gave my speech. lady who was local stood up. They flew everybody in from Holland. She said, hey, that's a great speech. We think you're a great guy. We got kids on this island that need to hear that message. We have an event a couple weeks where you come back and speak. I said, cool. Got off stage. It turned into go to the prison. They called the prime minister of the country who was on his way to the airport. He authorized me to go into the prison, which is against the rules because I'm out of the country. It's all this background check. He let me in on her say so. Wow. I go to the prison. The day I'm leaving, it's the next day. It's Wednesday. I'm leaving at 5 o'clock. It's 9 o'clock. I'm at the prison. The guy says, hey, man, we really need you here. 
And I said, if I stay for a week, will you let me in every day? He said, yes. I called my assistant. I canceled my flight. I was going on vac- My first vacation in four years was last week. I canceled it, and I stayed, and I went to prison every day. Wow. I said, my life has three things. I'm a Harvard fellow, an honorable son, and I impacted mass incarceration. If my life does not line up with what I say I am, then I'm a fraud. Hmm. So I had a choice of go on vacation and do me or stay there and impact people in prison's lives. You're about to work. I stayed and I worked in prison for a week, went to the schools to try to stop kids from going to prison. And I was there for a whole week every single day in a foreign country, not at the beach, not on a tourist thing, in a prison, talking to people, helping them get better. And what are you doing tomorrow? Tomorrow, I'm tonight, I'm driving two and a half hours after this up to Kentucky, New York to speak at a prison. Wow. Because people inside need to be told and they need to be shown that there's a way out. Mm-hmm. And in, for me, my thing is I want to help people get out of prison. All prisons aren't penitentiaries. Some people are acting in prisons of addiction, mm. bad relationships, you know what I'm saying, bad choices, bad jobs, old thinking, you know what I'm saying? They want out. They just don't know how to get out. Mm. So I've broken free from some of the biggest prisons. I want to help people break free from prisons. Mm. My mind used to be prison was people locked in a cell. That's when I thought small. Now my mind says it's people locked behind trauma and addiction and hard feelings. Mm. And I can those are actually harder to bust out. Right. Because they're more entrenched. Yeah, it's deep. It's in you. It's in your it's brain. It's internalized. Yeah. So, so, that's, you, so you can take someone that has like drug addiction problems and you can sort of map your experience within penitentiaries and understand, oh, this is how you're stuck in this cycle and you can help them get out of it. When you meet somebody who's living in trauma, addiction, negativity, bad relationships, bad jobs, it, bad job could be $400,000 a year job. It's going to be bad for you. Right. You say it's not how much you make. So it's not everybody works in Home Depot got a bad job. Sometimes that's a great job. Right. It's who you are in your life and in your mind. I've been through many years of isolation Many years of depression, many years of, of ne- neglect, many years of trauma. I've seen and been through so much stuff that when I sit with somebody, I just listen. I'm a professional speaker, but I'm a real listener. Mm. I listen better than I talk. Mm. And I listen to what you're saying, what you're not saying, what you're admitting, I'm saying, what you're exuding, and I speak to that. Mm-hmm. I don't speak to your potential. If I talk to your potential, it's a waste of time because your pain is blocking it. But if I talk to your pain and I move that, then your potential does what it's supposed to do. It is so much easier to talk to somebody's potential. Right. Oh, you're you're a comic. Let's talk about Jim Belushi. Let's talk about Eddie Murphy. Let's talk about Dave Chappelle. Yeah. And let's not talk about the time your mother didn't come get you for your birthday. She left you on the corner. Mm-hmm. Let's not talk about your sister dying in the street. Let's not talk about those things. Those things are hard. Right. So let's just talk about if I can potential you enough, maybe you hurdle your pain and it never works. Yeah, you can't you can't shake the stuff unless you're addressing it head on. So I don't worry about your potential. Right. I don't care what you want to be. Let me help you be who you're not. Mm. What you're trying to be. So now that you're out of the system, I'm curious. If I were to give you a billion dollars and I was like, okay, make the the perfect prison. What is the right prison for people that have offended? The perfect prison. If you gave me a billion dollars and said, Dre, make an impact. Yep. I want to cancel prison. I want to fix prison. I would go to every daycare center, every K K through one school in America, and I would fix it. 
Mm. You couldn't do it with a billion dollars. But right. give me a city. I, you say, hey, Dre, here's Detroit, Michigan. Here's a billion dollars. How do you spend it on prison reform? Prison reform isn't intervention. It's prevention. If I can stop people from coming, the people inside will just take care of themselves. Mm. So you go to the K-1s, you go to the preschools, and you make those so solid that those kids would never end up in prison. Right. Then anybody in jail either ages out and dies or they come home. Mm, you got to fix it at the root. <laughs> if you say to me, Dre, there's a thousand guys in this prison, there's a thousand kids in this daycare center, what do you do? Save the babies. Yeah. 10 out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. When I go into prisons, I tell men to their face, I'm about saving the babies ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, grown man, you had a choice. You made choices. Might have been the best. Might not have had the best inputs, but those babies deserve a first chance. Mm. So I will save babies over grown men any day of the week. Right. Now I'm curious. This is the last thing I'll ask you because I know you gotta. I know you gotta get out of here. Um, what can I do? I'm a 26 year old white kid. Like, why you got to be the white kid? Like, I noticed that you're white. I'm saying, I did not think you were not white. So what, what is the preface on being a white kid? Because I'm just, I guess I'm distant. I don't really know anyone that's been to prison. Yes, you do. You don't know me? Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. What is this? We've been here for two hours. Now you don't know me. I met you today, That don't count? No, no, that counts. That counts. But after today, okay, I know, like. Are you married? Are you just faking a ring? No, no, I'm married. Okay, so you met her the first day. Then what? And then Did I'm, you you just kicked it kicked it to the curb? Nah, and then I married her, and then I, I dated her. You kept her. it going. Yeah, I kept it going. So what you say? So okay. you know how this works. Okay. So, so why does it work different for white people than us? I'm gonna keep this going. I'm gonna keep this. No, going. No, you don't. Yeah, I will. I will. I'll hold me to my word. I'm gonna keep this going. Um, but I'm curious, like, what can I do? Like, if I'm a 26 year old kid, what? There what, you go. 26 year old man. You're not a kid anymore. 26 year old man. That's a good point. 26 year old man. What can I do to help prison reform? help kids that are, that are struggling? Like, how can I actually make an impact? I say this. If anybody who's watching this or is going to hear about this wants to make a difference, step one, save the babies. There is a grade school. There's a kidney garden. There's a daycare with some poor kids in it who are unevent, underserved, underdeveloped, in need. You can go to a daycare center in your neighborhood and say, yo, this is a for-profit business or non-profit, doesn't matter. There's a bunch of little babies in here, five, six, seven years old. You just say, you know something? I'm going to go down there, meet the director of this site, and say, hey, I want to support your site. I want to buy some books. I want to buy some trainings. I want to pay for your staff to do X. You know something? I'm an accountant. I'm going to help you with you. I'm going to do your accounting for you. Whatever it is, that you, st stop there. Little kids are so easy to work with because they smile so bright. I'm saying there's nothing better than a little kid smiling at you. So if you go find a daycare center or K-1 through, through third grade in your area or inner area and you can help it, it'll be so gratifying that you, you, you send me 10 thank you letters a week because mm -hmm. you would feel that good. And it's a lot easier to work with a 7-year-old who's trying to get his life together than trying to work with a 26-year-old who's trying to get his life together. Yeah. It's drastically different. It's different skill set, different outcomes, different algorithm. Go to the babies first. If you want to do something with prison, this thing right here is new technology. They have tablets. There's a company called Inventive that puts these tablets in the hands of prisoners. If you have a classroom in a prison, it can fit 100 people. But the prison holds 2,000. So you can never get anybody in the class. Mm. This puts the class in their hand. During COVID, lockdown, you can't get out to use the phone. Can't come out for a visit. You can do it right here. You know what I'm saying? So fighting over TVs, fighting over the TV room, TV right here. Mm. 
privacy phone call right here. Everything you need right here. Yeah. I'm saying so. Technology is real. If somebody wanted to be helpful, you're a comedian. I love to get some of your stand up stuff. Take it and put it on here, mm-hmm. so guys can laugh. I mean, we need to laugh in jail. They need to laugh because it's stressful sometimes. Yeah. So if you and your comedian friends want to do some skits, we can just go boom, put them right on here. Mm. Just donate some content and we can put it on there. You sing, give me a song, I'll put it on there. I mean, that's You're, great. How how can I do that? I can just call me. Yeah, I will. That's a great idea. Yeah. So I mean, I'm into like low threshold, low barrier, no stress. Something that's doable, easable, manageable. Mm-hmm. I don't want you like to go sell off your house and go try to save the kids on the south side of town. No, it's no something. You're a comedian. You got this podcast. Yeah. We take these podcasts. We can put it on here. Hey, Dre, I got 30 podcasts. I'm gonna give them to you. Put them on the platform. Mm. And guys in jail, girls in jail can see this platform. See this my stuff. Yeah. I got some stuff I take when I was a comedian. I got some friends I know that sing. Um, whatever the thing is. Yeah. We don't need dollars. We need people. Yeah. Now I'm curious. I've always heard people do like, oh, pen pal programs and writing to people. You can email them on here. Would that be helpful? Yeah. Like you can the- email. You can, they have these. You can email them right here. Mm-hmm. If you want someone to email pen pal, pen nobody writes letters. Yeah. They do texts. You can send a text and email right off this thing. Wow. So if you want to email somebody and just stay encouraged, send them prayers, send them affirmations, send them quotes, send them pictures. Let me see. When I send homies, they want to see pictures of me at the beach, me in first class on a plane, me really? sitting here with you, stuff they can't see. And this is the thing. It's content made for them. Right. It's not content made for the theater or for Netflix or for Amazon where they watch it. Yeah, that's a cool show. This is one of theirs. Yeah. Doing stuff for them. He sat in a cell just like this. And I'm talking about, yo, this is us. Right. And I'm showing them what could be. So if you guys say, hey, well, what can I do? I do content. I'm going to India in two weeks. I'm going to be running around India with a camera, just taking videos and pictures of me in India. I'm going to Taj, Dre at the Taj Mahal. Yo, this is real. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Me on G-Road, me around, this, me in India. Right. Me in Curacao, me in Amsterdam. This is stuff that they don't, exposure is everything. Yeah. So if somebody on here is in a great place or a great city, invite me out, man. We'll come out to your city and we'll film it. Yeah. I don't care what city it is. You can be in Des Moines, Iowa. I'll come. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Because the brothers ain't seen it. Right. The homies ain't seen it. And they want to see one of theirs going places. I come to Montana. I've been to Helena, Montana. I yeah. went. There was a little kid out there having a struggle. I went out to go see it. So shout out to Helena, Montana. You know what I'm saying? Salt Lake City, Utah. I help white kids, black kids, Spanish kids, Asian kids, poor kids, rich kids. I don't care. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I help people. It started out, I help black people. Hmm. Because that's why I was comfortable. Right. Now, I'm a little bit more mature. I just help people. Yeah. So if anybody's watching, say, yo, can we do? Set it up. I go, Listen, we want to film in Ireland. We want to film in China. We want to film in Germany. We want to film all over the world so we can put it on here and they can see what's possible. Wow. That video is going to go on here. Yep. They'll be like, whoa, Dre's in the submarine. I went scuba diving. Me scuba. I had an underwater camera dude with me. All so, so do they all know you like at all these different prisons? They about to. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they got six hundred fifty thousand people know me. Right. I used to go speak at a prison, hundred guys in the audience. Now I make one video, six hundred fifty thousand people in the audience. Yeah, that's crazy. I reach far better. Right. So I can't speak everywhere in person, but this makes it equal. And now people are probably writing to you, being like, "Oh, I just saw your video." Like, man, people hit, come home. They're like, "Yo, Dre, I watched your videos. I was inside, man. I'm encouraged. I'm gonna do something." I get that all the time now. 
Now, were, did, were you uncomfortable when you all of a sudden got sent all over the world and you went to India for the first time or you went to France for the first time? And I've been in 24 countries. They sent me across. I went across a prison tour, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, USP Lewisburg, USP Terre Haute, USP Atlanta, FCI El Reno, FCI Memphis, FCI Talladega. Might have been so many prisons, I can't remember the name of them no more. Wow. So why... If I can travel on prison planes, I can travel first class. Yeah, yeah, it's a little, little nicer. A little nicer. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. A little Man, nicer. This is, this has just been so cool. I really appreciate you sharing your story and and breaking all this stuff down. Um, I saw just today you released an episode of your podcast. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that and just like let That's people, going let on people, here. where can people find it? Like the podcast that was released today is on Apple Play. Mm -hmm. It's on any place you listen to um, podcasts. You just put Andre Norman Day One and it'll pop up. And it's me with another gentleman who's from New York who did about 22 years. And while he's inside, he went to college and got a degree. He came home. He's doing phenomenal work. And it's just, the thing is, we shot that podcast walk, walking through the streets of New York. I got an interview with him, me and him, just walking around New York. There's not us sitting in a room. With us. People want to see, they want to see stuff. Yeah, yeah. This is a nice set, but people want to see stuff. Yeah, yeah they yeah. want to see buildings. They want to see cars. They want to hear horns. Right, food, saying? everything, food, all that. Yeah. So yeah, that brother Jules, shout out to Jules from New York, from Brooklyn, um, came home. He's doing phenomenal stuff, and we just want to give people shout outs, man. Let people see that success is possible. Yeah, and I'm gonna read your book. What's the name of the book again? I ain't fucking with you. <laughs> I'm gonna read it, bro. I'm, t I'm telling you. Don't tell me this. This is like my dad now. <laughs> Making false promises and shit. You know, I ain't got to have no 26-year-old white dude prom faking like he's my Why father. do I got to be white now? Why, why, now, now why do I got to be white? Because that's what you claimed that. <laughs> I am going to read it, but what's the name of it again? Ambassador of Hope, Turning Poverty in Prison into a Purpose-Driven Life. Yeah. And they can get that on Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Only place we rock is Amazon. I don't rock with Jeff. If you ain't number one in the business, I'm not on no sideshow stuff. I rock with Jeff in Amazon. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This means a lot. I really appreciate you. For sure. That's been the episode. Thanks.